Welcome to the After the Battle Campfire, presented by the Modern Ronin. I'm your host, Tommy Chase, and I'll be your guide through the stories that are about to be told. On today's show, we have Anthony Cristo, a good friend of mine. I knew him through NAS San Antonio. He was a drilling reservist who spent four years in the Navy, but joined late in life at the age of 36. By the time he got out, he had served with 4th LAR, done a stint over at Bethesda Naval Hospital dealing with injured, wounded, and ill sailor soldiers and airmen coming back from Afghanistan and Iraq. After he left service, he went on to teach. Now he's running for Congress. Please welcome Anthony Christo. Such a creepy sound. Yeah. Technology at its best. Yep. All right, everybody. Here we are. We're back again. And today my guest is Anthony Christo or Tony. Either. I've known Tony. I have known Tony since 2008, nine, I think. Uh, eight. Somewhere. Yeah. 2008. 2008. And so I'm having Tony on for a couple reasons, but mainly because he's a good guy. Uh, Tony has been a friend of mine since I met him at NAS San Antonio, the Naval Operational Support Center. What I didn't know was he was actually at my old unit, Fourth uh, LAR, who we just had Joe Palacios on, who was there at the same around the same time both of us were there. Um, I had deployed, and I think Tony had probably gotten there right after I deployed, mm-hmm. so we didn't cross paths there. But Tony, do me a favor, introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Anthony Cristo. I live in Cibolo, Texas. I'm 49 years of age, and I am an English two teacher at uh, Karen Wagner High School in San Antonio. So speaking of high school, let's go back a little bit. We're going to start at the very, very little Tony uh, time frame. So Tony, you came into the service a little bit later than most. Yes. I was 36 years old when I went through boot camp and 37 when I went through field medical training at Camp Pendleton. So let's talk about that. As a child, did you have any desire to go into the military? No, I, I I respected the military, having grown up just across the railroad tracks from Fort Sam Houston. Um, and I remember as a child seeing the men that came back from Vietnam, you know, emotionally in shambles, missing arms, missing legs. And they were literally spat upon by the public in general. I mean, literally spat upon. Um, and when the first Gulf War came about, uh, I was told, you know, this probably isn't going to last long. Sure enough, it didn't. We were in and we're out. No problem. Once uh, Operation Enduring Freedom and Operation uh, Iraqi Freedom came about, uh, it started going on longer than what it was supposed to. And I tried enlisting at 35, but I didn't make the height weight standards. And when I was 36, I did. And unfortunately, I could only go in as a reservist then. And that's why. So, well, let, let's back up a okay. little bit before we get too far ahead. So, in high school, you were born, you said, right around the same area. You've lived in basically San Antonio your entire life. Yes, the so, Kirby. Yeah. So, what was your thing in high school? What 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 made you you in high school? I was a social butterfly in that um, 
I can interact with any group. I mean, I was in all honors classes. I was in computer programming. I was in the science club, the math club. I competed in number sense, UIO poetry reading. I was a band geek. I played xylophone in band, uh, but I was also very athletic and I was able to outperform many of the jocks that were in my grade. And uh, so I had their respect as well. And uh, didn't matter what, what, where you came from, whether you're black, whether you're white, whether you're Asian, and there were a lot of Asian people at the time because of Vietnam, um, we, you know, we got along. And that was my thing is, you know, whenever there was two people arguing from different groups, I would always try to be the peacemaker because it's like, hey, I'm friends with him and I'm friends with him. So let me try and make some peace with those people. So that's how your high school went. And I know you graduate high school mm -hmm. and you went on to study at university, right? I initially, I had a year off. It was a personal issue that uh, prevented me from going directly into, into uh, college. Uh, but in the summer of 1990 is when I started at UTSA. I was there for about two years and then I went into the seminary, because I was actually studying to be a priest one time back in 1993. Uh, after that, when I, I realized it wasn't for me, I still have utmost respect for people of the clergy. And, and I actually encourage people that if they have a calling to go ahead and look into it. Uh, but for me, it, it wasn't for me. And I didn't graduate college until I went back in 2000. It was uh, shortly after my mother had died. And I realized she didn't get a chance to see me graduate. So I went back to Incarnate Word. I threw myself into my studies and I graduated magna cum laude with my bachelor's of communication arts in 2002. So between the time you left the seminary and going back to college, what did you do? Uh, I became a general manager of a video arcade chain that was here in San Antonio called Diversions Game Room. There's still one left. Uh, the, when I was there, I was in charge of seven, uh, seven locations. Uh, I trained all the managers. I made sure to uh, do inspections and all the other things that shouldered uh, my responsibility. Plus, I did all the hiring, and I had to make sure that they followed the guidelines that was expected by the owner. And I dealt directly with the owner in doing video game repairs and uh, making sure he got to meet the, the new employees, making sure they passed the drug screens. Uh, so, you know, I was pretty involved hands-on and personnel-wise with so you sound like you were pretty process oriented at that time. Yeah, I, I once I get in a pattern and once I establish something, I'm rigid. If I'm not sure or if it's someone else's, sometimes I get a little discombobulated. Most recently because of the medications that I'm on. But uh, normally I'm, I'm, I'm very focused, very organized and very analytical in, in what uh, my steps are. So you've had the luxury of doing many years as a civilian and then going into the military. Mm -hmm. So when 9-11 happened, were you still in college at that time or did you graduate in 2000? No, I, I was, I had just started college and I was actually beginning my senior year at Incarnate Word. And I remember vividly, I was, I had an early morning class that day. And as I was getting ready, as usual, I was watching the news and all of a sudden, you know, they showed a plane crashing into, you know, the first tower. And so I'm watching it, telling my wife, okay, be careful going to work. And, you know, the second one hit. And I told her, it's like, if anything happens, because I know San Antonio being a huge military town is a target. I said, 
meet me in uh, Ozona, Texas. And, you know, I'll, however you need to get there, I'll get there at the Dairy Queen in Ozona, Texas. She was trying to figure out how to get there. I was like, just go downtown. <laughs> uh, but um, yeah, I remember seeing it online and I ran to the class, turned on the TV immediately while there because it's a communication thing. And I had the presence of mind to actually check, well, which is faster, the television or the internet? And we had high-speed internet access. So I pulled up my laptop. The inter That was when the internet really broke. I mean, you could not access any web page because there was so much traffic going on people trying to figure out what's going on here. I mean, you can, you can pull up your main page, but that's it. It wouldn't let you navigate anywhere. So that's, you know, I, it kind of impressed my professor, but, uh, you know, it was one of those things that even though this tragedy was going on, I had the presence of mind to stay focused on what my degree was going to be for. So, so what were you studying at the time? Communication arts, which includes radio, television, film, uh, desktop publishing, and my minor was in theater arts, uh, which of course was acting, set building, uh, costume designs, and uh, uh, theater history as well. So was there a difference before and after 9-11 in your life? Yeah. Uh, after that, you know, um, and ironically, it, it was really weird because I was one of the few people after the, the planes hit the Pentagon and, and the World Trade Center and crashed in Pennsylvania. I was one of the few people who said, well, we don't know who did this. We just executed Timothy McVeigh uh, back in April. So, you know, we're not sure if it's one of his people, whatever, but there was a lot of people that automatically assumed it was Muslims, which of course they were right, but we didn't know. And I had curly hair at the time and it was kind of long. And when I let my hair grow, I looked Persian. And as I was crossing the street, the very next day, someone was like, some redneck pulled up in his truck. Hey, you an Arab? I was like, no, I'm a Mexican. He's like, well, you better not be. And that's when I realized it's like, okay, this is pretty serious. I mean, there's some people that are you know, very extreme. Uh, after that, uh, I realized and when it started going on longer than I expected, I said, you know, uh, I don't want these people to be treated like they were, you know, the Vietnam, you know, our Vietnam vets were treated. I want them to let them know that they're appreciated and that they're cared for. And everyone was putting on their bumper stickers, you know, the little yellow ribbon uh, says, you know, bring them home, all the other stuff. And I said, you know, I'm going to do more than put a ribbon on my car. I'm going to, I want to enlist. And even though I graduated magna cum laude with my degree, I waived my right to be an officer. Uh, just so I can go enlisted and become a corpsman because I figured uh, rather than leading someone from CNN around from place to place, uh, I'd rather be with the men and help keep them alive whenever possible. So what was your, so you said that you knew that you wanted to be a corpsman. So what was your knowledge base about um, the different jobs that the Navy offered at that point in time? Well, my brother-in-law was actually a recruiter for the Navy and he got my baby brother because we're both, we both scored a 97 on the ASVAB. We're not to brag, but you know, my family's pretty intelligent. Uh, he went in as a nuclear engineer and I asked my brother-in-law, well, what else is there? And he told me, you know, Corman, you go to, at the time it was called FMSS, it was Field Medical Service School. And, um, then it got changed at Field Medical Training Battalion. By the time I got there, I was like, okay, well, that's, I'm not gonna be 
a Marine per se, but I'll be their medic. So uh, I, again, I waived my right to be an officer, went into boot camp in September of 2007. Uh, they called me old school because, you know, here's this 36 year old man who's really about retiring age for most, you know, sailors going in and uh, going through boot camp. And I remember a lot of my RDCs, which is uh, recruit, uh, recruit training command, uh, they're, they're, I was older than them. They're like, do you have any problem taking, you know, orders from someone who's younger than you? And I was flat up honest with them. I was like, you know, just because I have a degree and I'm older, I learned a lot in college, but I didn't learn how to be a sailor. I didn't learn how to be a soldier. You have. So I'm going to make it an effort to learn whatever I can from you. So you tell me what to do. I'm going to do it because that's what's going to keep me alive. And so whenever I was at, at basic training, when I was at uh, core school, and when I was at the Camp Pendleton with the Marines, I absorbed everything. Ego out, ears open. And that's what it should, it should have been for everyone. But, uh, you know, there seemed to be uh, some respect among the the my trainers that, you know, here's this old guy coming in and trying to do a little bit more than put a bumper sticker on his car to help our troops. So let me ask you this. So as you, obviously you had no liberty in boot camp, but as you went to core school, um, I'm assuming it was still up in Great Lakes at the time. Yes, it was. So you're already, you're almost immediately uh, in civilian clothes and liberty every weekend, except for duty weekends. Mm -hmm. And then field med, same thing, basically, unless you're standing duty 16, oh, yeah. 1800, you're done unless you have a test or something. Mm -hmm. So what was Liberty like for you at 36? Uh, I hung out with the guys, you know, it's like, I'm not going to be, a, I'm not, so even though I'm old enough to be their parent, I mean, we're in this together. Uh, so there was, there was some um, paternal instincts that kicked in where, yeah, a guy broke up with his girlfriend for so many years. He got the Dear John letter and I'm, you know, talking to them and letting them know, hey, you know, because I was I was divorced by that time from my first marriage. And I said, you know, sometimes you can do everything right and it's still not enough. You know, it's not it's not dependent on you sometimes. It's just out of your hands and you just have to let it go. Uh, so, you know, I was kind of counseling them from an older person's point of view. But if we went out to a bar, we went out to a bar, you know, had a good time. Usually I was keeping an eye on them, make sure they didn't get out of control. But, you know, we had the same fun, we played jokes on each other. I'm sure you remember the Marines are notorious for playing practical jokes oh, yeah. on each other. <laughs> so uh, we did that too and made the MRE bombs and scared the hell out of people. And that, those, those are like fun times. So, yeah, I was, I was basically one of the guys when I was with them. So how did you feel showing up to boot camp at, you know, Great Lakes? Born and raised in Texas. I don't know what time of the year you went into boot camp. September. Uh, so, and then I okay, graduated so in, in November, November 8th. So you didn't get the full effect of winter. No. Um, but January 27th for me. In Great Lakes during, I was You did get it for core school though. Yeah, negative 54. It was really cold up there, especially right off Lake Michigan. It was, it was very, very cold. Yeah, core school was still at the time where I, remember it being when I went because I went several years before you did mm -hmm. if you walk straight from the main from the training building to the uh, I guess it's a VA hospital now on the Great Lakes mm -hmm. side 
and you go another maybe four or 500 yards, you're on Lake Michigan. There's like a little mm -hmm. picnic area right there. So yeah, we had wind coming off with humidity during the summer, yeah. but you must've had that lake effect snow coming off. Oh yeah, we did. And you know, there was a deer uh, that were outside and my buddy and I, uh, he was 24. So we're a little closer in age. And uh, we one time tried to wrestle a deer into our, our barracks uh, just to give, uh, when we had inspection, give them a nice little surprise when they opened our door, but we decided, you know, that's best not to do. So we didn't do it. No, do not do that. So, but boot camp itself, was that a culture shock to you at all or? No, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't, hold up. It wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. Yeah, you know, I was expecting like full metal jacket, uh, Arlie, Ermy, you know, saying all these things. I mean, yeah, there were, there was some hazing, but they seemed to target it more on the the ones that really shouldn't have been there uh, or needed that extra whipping into place. You know, as long as you, you know, and they even pulled me aside and say, you know, hey, old school, you know, most of the stuff that we do is to help get them mentally prepared for everything. We cleared it out. You clearly have been through a lot. We know, you know, that you're doing that. So whenever we're, you know, doing IT with these guys, uh, we're going to have you inside, you know, doing lesson plans. Cause I was, I ended up becoming the education petty officer for my division. And uh, a lot of it was because I scored a 97. Also I had a bachelor's degree. I was older, so I could actually lead the classes. I only had one person uh, under my tutelage fail out. And I helped three guys get their GED while I was in. Oh, wow. Yeah. So now with, um, with that, Obviously, you. I'm making the broad assumption you were the oldest there. Oh, definitely. Yeah. By by a bit. The youngest guy turned 18 in October, so I was already twice as more than twice his age when I had gone. Oh wow. Yeah. Damn. Mm -hmm. I didn't even. Yeah, that's crazy. So, you go through boot camp. What was the? Well, I guess the big question is: in 2007, was it? It, it was integrated uh ships right so you had males and females yes. on board uh, so was your birthing set up mixed birthing or was it just mixed division no uh well my division uh we did not have any females or other divisions that were i was one of the ones that did not have females um, but yeah it, it was definitely integrated just uh, my division and our sister division across the way and i call them sisters because well you know maybe yeah. maybe named calling uh they they did not have any uh, females either Oh, okay. So all of that being said, what was the one thing that stood out the most? And I always have to ask this of uh, my Navy friends, how'd you like the gas chamber? Oh, yeah, that was fun. It wasn't bad in uh, Navy boot camp, but field medical training, oh, doing PT inside a gas chamber and you're building up sweat, taking the mask on, taking the mask off. I mean, they're telling you to do push-ups, sit-ups, everything you can in there, and you're not. And they keep adding more gas to it to keep it, you know, fully stocked. Uh, yeah, that was a task. I mean, that you get, but you have to get prepared for that because you never know if and when that's going to happen. I mean, you can't just go, oh my, you know, you got to be able to take it. And so they they basically uh, beat the hell out of you so you can get used to it, uh, not just with the gas chamber, but you know. Uh, with Marine Corps martial arts, MCMAP, but uh, yeah, they, they basically prepare you, toughen you up in the Marines. Yeah. So now with, um, 
Oh my God. So with boot back to boot camp real quick. We'll get to field men in a second, but back to boot camp. So what was um your memorable moment? Was it graduation? Was it the final exercise? Or did anything like really stand out? Yeah, actually, um I me and one other guy were chosen to represent our division to be like the top graduates of our graduating class. And we competed with others. We went into a room with two senior chiefs and then four chiefs and they asked us questions and they checking our military bearing our our you know our appearance they were scoring you on everything and uh, yeah I wound up coming in third out of all the divisions that graduated at that time I was number three and there was a little over a thousand uh, sailors that graduated that year so it felt good to be you know number three uh especially at my age, obviously some younger people could move a little better than me. But when I finished, um, when I finished boot camp, I was actually able to finish the PRT in what was expected of people that were 18. So I was in very nice. good physical health back then. So now let me ask you this. So as you, again, 36 years old, I don't mean to harp on your age, no, but right. at 36 years old, um, I know you well enough to know that you were close to your family, yeah. especially your dad. What was that conversation like having it with uh, your dad and your brothers? Well, my dad, he had served, well, just before Vietnam in the army and he was in the infantry. Um, so, you know, he and his father uh, was actually served during World War II in the army. So there was a long family history. My oldest brother, he served in the Gulf War. And he was with First Cavalry Tank. So we had, you know, grandfather was Army, father was Army, uh, oldest brother was Army. And then Stephen, my baby brother, he joined a few years before me because, you know, he went out of high school. Uh, he went Navy and I went Navy, but Greenside where I could go with the Marines. So I, I always jokingly say I go both ways, Navy and Marines. But <laughs> uh, yeah, it was, it was kind of a long tradition. My dad, you know, saw that as like, um, well, you know, if you're sure that this is what you want to do, I support you uh, because, you know, he did it as well. And uh, so, yeah, there was no tension or animosity. He was pretty much like, he's a grown man. He knows what he's doing. If he wants to do it, you can do it. And my sister was like, oh, you're going to help my husband, you know, get, meet his quota for the month. <laughs> so there was, there was that aspect as well, you know. But uh, yeah, I, I just wanted to, you know, like I said, do a little more to put a bumper sticker on my car and, uh, that's oh, I had very good family support there. Good, good. So now you come, uh, you go to core school, which at the time was probably what, uh, eight weeks. Yeah, but we were on hold there uh, for two months, from November till January. They had us on hold there because there was oh, holiday routine. There were so many corpsmen going through at the time because they were preparing for that amped up uh, move that happened in two thousand and nine. Um, and so they were loading up on, on Corman in particular. Uh, we actually, they had to reopen one of the barracks they shut down which, because of asbestos. <laughs> but, you know, the needs of the military come first. So they stuck us in there at first. And then once we classed up, uh, my buddy, John and I, we, we got to room together in the, the new BEQ, which is Bachelor's Enlisted Quarters, for those of you that don't know. And uh, so we, you know, we, we went to the new one without the asbestos and they eventually closed that one back down, but they had to temporarily open it 
to accommodate the large influx of corpsmen that were coming in. So were a lot of those guys uh, fleet returnees or were they all just straight from boot camp? There was an even mix. There were some who had been um, now other rates, you know, did other jobs in there. One was like with the uh, security police, you know, there's, I don't remember all the other ones, but there was people of different rates that went in and um, yeah, they had trouble readjusting back to the, you know, discipline that they're expecting from um, uh, a school, you know, so to speak though. Yeah. But uh, yeah, eventually we all, we all bonded together and, and uh, worked as So what would you, what would you guess out of your boot camp? Um, percentage wise from your company mm -hmm. went course went corman well, let's see there's escamilla there was my roommate johnny there was marco um there was snyder uh, uh there was like about eight eight out of 80 so about 10 percent of us went into uh okay that's not too yeah. bad so you go to core school you i'm assuming you excelled at the uh at the actual classroom part. Yeah, they actually asked me to be a education petty officer again. This time I passed it off, you know, because I was like, you know, I, I've had enough life experience. I told our chief, let some of these younger guys get that experience. So he understood. And so I acquiesced to that. So how was the practicals for you, the actual labs? Labs, they were easy. How did you take Yeah, uh, they were a little more difficult in um, field med. But yeah, the practicals in, in core school were pretty easy. And uh, like I said, I was in the science club back in high school. And, you know, I still remember, you know, grand formula weights of different, you know, things from, from memory. Uh, obviously, we didn't meet that that much in, in core school, but I remember the physiology, anatomy, and genetic classes I took in high school. And those helped, you know, retain a lot. I helped, it helped reinforce what I already knew or remind me of what I had forgotten. So it, it was pretty easy to get back into the group of that. Okay, so now you, do you, you're, you're a mobile, you're the, you're a reservist at this point in time. You're going through these things on active duty. Mm -hmm. Did you come home first or did you go to uh, field med straight from core school? I came home for like a couple of days. I got my car, cause I wasn't gonna be without a car again and drove all the way back from San Antonio to Camp Pendleton there near San Diego. Um, yeah, and I, I did that and, you know, basically one trip. And I know, I know you've made that trip before. Uh, and Nine, 10 times. Yeah, and you know, I, I did that, uh, you know, in my, in my car, just so I could have my car while I was there because I don't like being at the mercy of cabs or people who had cars who maybe were jerks. And yeah, it's, a, it's not the ideal thing. So what rank were you at this time? I was an E3. Uh, so did you come in as a three or I came in as a three because of my bachelor's degree. Okay. Just, just want to verify that. So you're, you're not a petty officer yet, mm -hmm. uh, but you are a reservist and I hate to say it like this. They do give a little bit more leeway to the reserve guys for bringing their POVs, their personal owned vehicles. Mm -hmm. I think it would have gone over really bad had you been an active duty sailor as an E3 pulling onto Camp Pendleton, mm -hmm. but that's a discussion for active duty sailors. Yeah. So you go through, you get there, you do the dog and pony show at Field Men. Mm -hmm. What was that like for you? Because that, that's a lot different than anything you've been through so far. Uh, it was more intense, I'm not going to lie. But it, again, it wasn't as bad as, you know, the movies make it out to be. Um, and a lot of times because the instructors, they're Marines and they're like, they love Corman. I mean, they're, they're, of all the people in the Navy, they don't like anyone else 
except maybe EOD, and they kind of respect the seals, but Corman, they love us to death. So they were, you know, they were made sure that we did um, intense training. I'll never forget when we went out into the field for the first time, and they're telling us to roll out our isomats and our sleeping uh, sleeping bags. And one guy asked, excuse me, Staff Sergeant, where's our, where's our tents? And of course, you just look at the tents. This ain't the FN Air Force. <laughs> These are Marines. We don't have tents. So, uh, you know, it was definitely more intense there. We got to do more intense uh, training, like when we did the confidence course. You got razor wire, well, Constantine wire. Uh, you have the little thing you have to crawl through. You get, you're going to get muddy. And when I was doing it, the master gunnery sergeant, he actually threw a canister in where I was crawling. It hit me in the shoulder, burned a little, but I just kept on going and put on my mask while I was going because I didn't have my mask on at the time. And again, these are all situations you may find yourself in. So it's not really, it's not considered hazing. It's preparing you, you know, for the real thing. And I know- when Which in my opinion, there's a, there's a certain element of hazing that should be allowed. Yeah. I'll leave it at that. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, because it, it builds character. You know, it, it definitely, it, when being humble is a learning experience. And when uh, there are times like when we were in Mount Town, um, I was in a particular room and these guys, they cleared the room and then the staff sergeant had him turn around and face him. He's like, okay, how many fingers was Christo holding up? And I was, you know, either holding like three or I was holding one. Usually it was a different one besides this one. But uh, yeah, they had to basically, again, you know, keep track of everything in the room. Was this person holding a grenade? I mean, you don't know. I mean, yeah, he seems unarmed, but what about his hands? You know, what, what's in his hands? So, you know, that type of intensity helped keep, you know, help these guys realize you got to be on your toes. You got to be. So this is 2008 then, right? 2008. July of 2008 is when I graduated. Okay. Because it's definitely a little bit different than when I went through in 04, but I think we had learned a lot of lessons probably from 07 back mm -hmm. that were probably applied to your classes. Yeah. Which sounds like it did help a lot more. Mm -hmm. We had some. I don't want to say we had some bullshit training, but we had some, we didn't have quite the level of training that I would have expected myself. Yeah. And I know it's only gotten better since then. Well, and I think when I went in being 30, you know, turning 37 and, and uh, well, I had actually already turned 37 during core school and being there, I felt the need that I needed to try extra hard so that, you know, I could show these guys, well, one, so that I wouldn't be showing up and they'd take a look at me and say, what the hell is this old man doing here? So I pushed myself harder. Than most and uh, again I did the PRT and uh, I, I ran the three miles in 23 24 which is great for you know 37 year old 37 year old man and uh, I excelled and then when we did that final confidence course I made it up to the top of the rope you know climbing the rope and I made it to the top and there's a lot of guys who are 18 19 years old who couldn't even pull themselves up so See, I don't even think we did that. Oh, you, you did. Yeah. Yeah. We did that. And uh, those that couldn't go up, you know, these the sergeants and staff sergeants, they had them just do like 30 pushups right there. Uh, since we yeah, I, I think one for I, each foot. I want to say that the class before us and a few classes after us did. And I think there was like a, one of the Marines because, you know, that was a shared training facility. Yeah. I think one of the Marines had fallen and broken his face or something no. from like one of the battalions. So they shut it all down for safety reasons yeah. at the time. But I do remember they talked about it, but we never did it. Yeah, we did it. So anyways, back to you, because you're the important one here. <laughs> so you, um, 
you pass field med, then what happens? Well, uh, I know what we when we had to pass field med, we had to do that eight mile hump with the you know complete bag. And I know that we, you know, we had to go up Cardiac Hill, which I'm sure you remember um, as the final leg. And as we're going up, you know, I'm, I'm in the middle. I mean, I'm, not, I'm, I'm an old guy. I'm not going to be in front, but I'm, I'm in the middle. And as I get to the top, you know, the captain, he says, hey, old school, go down there and check to see if we need to get an ambulance for those guys that are way at the back. And I was going to, and so I didn't even take my pack off and I start humping it back down the hill. And I'm seeing, as I'm going down, I'm seeing guys that are grabbing onto the guys in front of this pat and they're helping pull them up, you know, which, which is loud because, you know, you want to make sure that you're looking out for your buddy. Um, right. So as, as we get down to the bottom, as I get down to the bottom, you know, I'm out of breath because I had already made it up once and now I have to go back down and make it back up again with my pack. So um, I asked the staff sergeant, staff sergeant, you know, I'm out of breath. Like, uh, you know, Captain wants to know if these guys need an ambulance. He goes, no, nah, they just need a little motivation. I was like, all right. So I looked at the smallest guy and I told him, grab my pack and they'll pull you up. And of course, the staff sergeant goes to the other guy, grab my pack. We're going to race him. So we start going up and I could tell the staff sergeant uh, making it, you know, trying not to dust me and make it look so bad. He's, he's keeping a steady pace. He could easily go a lot faster. And I knew the other guy had been malingering the whole time because I feel him pushing me up, up the hill instead of me pulling him up. And then as soon as we get to the top, you know, and of course the staff sergeant, his guy won by, by a little bit. And I get up there, I fling my pack off my back and I just barf all over the place. And some of it got on the captain's boots. And he's like, he's like that's what I want to see. If you ain't puking, you didn't push yourself hard enough. And he goes, hey, old school, how old are you? And I was like, 37, sir. 37. And he goes, turns to the guy that I helped pulled up and goes, How old are you? He's like 19. 19. Well, how does it feel to be pulled up cardiac hill by a man nearly twice your age? He's like, Well, it doesn't feel very good, sir. He goes, I wouldn't feel good either. And he asked the other guy, Hey, uh, how old are you? He's like, 27. He's like, 27. Okay, how old are you, Staff Sergeant? He's like, 28. Okay, that's not bad. He's like, Hey, Staff Sergeant, what's that pretty purple ribbon I see on your dress blues? He's like, you go, purple heart, sir. And how did you get that? He goes, I was fragged by a grenade in, in Iraq, and I still got shrapnel in my leg and in my chest. And, you know, and he's like, all right, roger that. And he's like, so he turns to the other guy and says, how does it feel to be pulled up cardiac hill by a guy with a purple heart? And then uh, he's like, doesn't feel very good. And the whole purpose of the captain pointing that out is like, he, he asked me, old school, why did you do that? And I said, because I don't want to be the corpsman that has to tell the parent of that um, Marine that their son or daughter died because I quit or because I gave up. And um, yeah, that, that was, that was a, a, less, a lesson learned for the other guys that saw that. And uh, I see why the, uh, the captain had me do that. Makes sense. And it, it was a good move too. So as we move on from there, you've graduated field med now. So now you are officially an 8404 Navy Hospital Corpsman, which is the Naval Enlisted or Navy, Naval, Navy Education Code, which is now changed to some bullshit L series, some crap. Mm -hmm. There's no more 8404s. They're now like L something. Sorry, had to vent about the Navy for a second <laughs> because I love them so much, hence the flag. Um, 
all of that being said and done, you're now released from active duty. Mm -hmm. What do you do now? Well, I started going back to work in Hollywood because prior to that, I was, I was working in Hollywood when I could on films and TV shows. And I got a call to go out and work. Well, prior to boot camp, I, I was working on the, the movie Get Smart and with uh, Steve Carell and Hathaway and all them and uh, went to the rap party and everything. And I wanted to get back into that because, you know, and I figured, you know, well, Camp Pendleton is not too far by, you know, I could drill there as well. So I went back and was looking. Did, well, did you know where you were going to be drilling at that point? In time? I was supposed to be drilling in San Antonio, but because um, I was closer there uh, and uh, our chief, God, I forgot his name. Normally I know his name right off the back, but I can't think of the chief. Yeah, he was a bit of a jerk. Uh, he pulled me into 4th LAR and um, yeah, so that that's when I wound up with fourth LER. And, oh, okay. And then they were uh, they were building us up to go to uh, Afghanistan, and uh, so you know that was the unit I was drilling with. Before the deployment, though, during the pre-deployment physical, my left knee, which actually had been bothering me in boot camp, core school, and field med, but I was you know sucking it up and you know playing it off. Uh, they checked my knee and uh, Commander uh, Dutta, he's the one who inspected it. And he said, I can't let you, you know, deploy with this knee because you know, you'd be a liability and an asset. So uh, I didn't deploy. Uh, the guy who volunteered to go in my place, uh, he wound up killed in action along with Sergeant Major Cottle. Uh, so it, it, there, there's that burden that weights on your shoulders, you know, that I was supposed to go. I physically couldn't be able. And the guy that went in my place died. So that that was a still is a, a very heavy, heavy weight on my mind. Um, but then afterwards, you know, since the unit deployed, I started, I was still living in California, but I needed to drill. So I was flying back one week in a month to drill in San Antonio. So I was paying out of my own pocket. Usually it was about $200 round trip. I'd stay at my dad's house, which again was not far from Fort Sam. So it was very convenient. And then I, I just fly back. So I was doing that until I finally moved back to San Antonio and then continued drilling at the NOS in San Antonio. So let's talk about, um, I know it seems a little weird after that intense moment that we just had, but let's talk about your work life drill balance because like you said you were working in hollywood at the time mm -hmm. which is a pretty unforgiving industry unless you're an, uh, what they call an above the line person mm -hmm. so director writer um, um producer star you're working asinine hours mm -hmm. several days yeah. a week how did they accommodate you for your drill uh, usually what they would do is um they would let me go early on Friday so I can catch my flight. And as soon as I got into San Antonio, I hit the sack and got up early, got dressed, went to drill Saturday, got a little more sleep Saturday night, went, got back early uh, Sunday morning and went to drill. Then I made sure I, at right after drill, I flew back, even if it was late night. And then I got my car, drove back to my uh well, it was a room I was renting for my house. And then I got up usually by about 5 a.m. the next day so I could start work 
by 6 a.m. over and wherever they had me on location, you know, filming. So that was. So did you? Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. No. I was going to say, so did you pass up work during when you had your ATs, which yes. is the two weeks a month that yeah. you do? I, I did have to uh, give up some of my, some potential jobs because there's no guarantees in Hollywood. Um, so I did, pat, but I, I did have some that were waiting for me there uh, after I finished Get Smart. But, you know, I decided this was more important. So I, I put that on the back burner. I went through boot camp, field, um, you know, core school, field med, and then I jumped back into it. So luckily I was able to get on the TV series Hawthorne after that. So uh, that was, that was really so, fortuitous. So I, I'm willing to bet you it's probably different now than back in 2007, eight, nine timeframe. Mm -hmm. But how did Hollywood as a whole treat, you know, uh, people who were drilling reservists who were still serving, but also working, uh, if that makes any sense? If they said anything negative, it wasn't to my face. And I didn't really feel any uh, animosity. Uh, and, and I think- But were they supportive of the military at, at that time? Well, you know, basically what, and a lot of it was, you know, we talked about it. I said, you know, it's okay to hate the war, just don't hate the soldier like we did in Vietnam. You know, because I mean, you, you've been there and, you know, I've been around and seen people come back in pieces. So you and I both hate the war, but we still respect the military. And that's, that's a given. We just don't like the fact that it's, you know, going in places it shouldn't be, staying in places longer than, it, than it's supposed to be and costing American lives because we're not supposed to police the world. And right. so, yeah, it's, it's okay to hate the war, just don't hate the soldier. But I mean, so no one was verbal, no one questioned why you chose to serve? Uh, when civ civilians, yeah. Like if, if I got out, like, cause you know, you can't wear your uniform off base, um, especially your, your, uh, your digicams. And uh, I was pumping gas one time. Cause you know, if not, I was gonna make it back. So I'm in my uniform and I got the, the baby killer. And another time when I was at the bank, um, this this one one teller she kind of gave me this uh, snide comment, uh, you know. It's and I, I just responded with you know I was like boom you know I'm sorry you feel that way but you know it is what it is you know and I, I'm not doing this for your appreciation is basically what I felt. Oh no, I meant but within within the industry within the industry no not really no, there was actually like I said, they, they hated the war. They didn't hate the soldier. And part of my, part of my experience actually wound up in uh, the first season of Hawthorne because they had one of the characters, because I was set to deploy. They had her. Well, what, what, what would you tell people what Hawthorne was? Hawthorne was a TV series that came out on TNT starring Jada Pinkett Smith and Michael Vartan, who was on the TV show Alias. And uh, she was a nurse in Virginia. Uh, that was her character and centered around her but there was other characters in there, uh, really great I mean, was people. It, I mean, I loved them. Was it a drama? What, what was the, the premise? It's kind of it? like Grey's Anatomy, but you know, less sex. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Just, I didn't know whether it was a cop show or whether Hospital it was drama. a medical drama. Yeah. Oh, okay. And uh, yeah, there were good people. And, and one of the characters, when they found out I was deploying, uh, they made her deploy, which was, was kind of weird. And um she came back the next season 
but uh, yeah, and I, I was supposed to be in Afghanistan at the time, but uh, they were very, they were supportive in that uh, the very last night of shooting, shooting, I was supposed to be up you know, with the uh, drilling in at Camp Pendleton and I didn't get my orders directly. So I didn't know I was supposed to be there and they're calling saying, you're UA, you need to get up here. And I was like, okay, well, I called them, let them know, hey, this is my last day of work, but I'll get up there as soon as I can. They said, Roger that. And I'm in shock this last day of shooting because I'm like, my God, I, I, I'm, I'm deploying. You know, I, was, I was absolutely dumbfounded. I had no idea because I hadn't gotten my orders yet. And uh, luckily they, they do what's called the, the $5 bucket where you, know, you put in a $5 bill with your name on it. And then at the end of the last day of shooting, usually on Friday, uh, they draw one of the $5 bills and whoever's name is on it gets the whole bucket. Um, it was rigged, obviously. They had a $20 bucket and um, one of the producers, she was nice enough. She, she goes, I'll get it. She reaches in, pulls it out and calls my name. I didn't even put anything in there. Um, but yeah, it was like one of their subtle ways to rig it, to give me a, um, to reward me for going, for deploying. Also, I didn't know if I was going to have a chance to see my father before I left because I was supposed to leave straight from, from Camp Pendleton, you know, over to North Carolina and then, uh, then deploy. But, um, I, you know, they gave me a chance cause I had to like leave my apartment, my room for rent and then pack up all my stuff and go because I wasn't going to put my car and stuff in storage for whatever. And then if something happened, have, you know, have to have my father, you know, fly out there and get the stuff. So I, I took everything back to San Antonio. And um, when they, the order, when the orders were canceled because of my knee, I drove all the way back to Camp Pendleton with all my gear, turned it back in and, uh, you know, showed him the, the medical record that says, you know, he can't deploy knees not, knees not combat ready, capable rather. And uh, yeah, so that's how that went. But yeah, overall, I'd say the people in Hollywood on set, if they were, you know, anti-military, you know, military, they weren't to my face. Did Was there a veteran community up there that you- Actually there is, that's, that's a very good point. There is, there is a group of ve uh, veterans up there that specifically work in the industry and they kind of, you know, have some solidarity with each other. In fact, one of the guys on, on the TV series, Hawthorne, uh, he had been a corpsman from like way back and he asked me to get him a shirt um, for him. So, you know, I, I did. So uh, he, he gave me the money for the shirt. I got him a shirt, brought it back. So yeah, I mean, it, it, was, it was kind of interesting to, you know, see that group up there uh, even, because it's very hard to be, you know, in Hollywood as liberal as it is to be, um, military but like i said i think they learned by this time that it's okay to hate the word just don't hate the soldier so you have your orders canceled mm -hmm. um and i think that's about the time that i would i started to realize who you were coming into not san antonio at, the, at that point mm -hmm. in time um because we had i think we had talked about you going with fourth lar at mm -hmm. one point in time when i was over at recon yeah you were with fourth recon and i was lar and then um, you go back to LA, uh, drive back out there with all your gear and stuff. You, I don't want to say you get excused, but they cancel your orders before you even start the mobilization process. Yeah. So that's it done. So did you, 
I forgot whether you stayed with 4th LAR and kept drilling no. or did you? I, I started since there was no place for me to drill there. There was, there was no more, you know, 4th LAR there. They were over in North Carolina. That's when I started flying out back to San Antonio to drill out there. Uh, just because I was familiar with that area and, you know, it was, you know, it, it was kind of hard to go back to the, the Navy side uh, there in where where fourth a you know where the and seeing the empty spot where fourth lar was was so that was uh, that was the reason why i decided to fly back to san antonio and continue drilling there one because that was where i was supposed to be drilling um and two it's just it was a little hard to you know to know that those guys were over there and as much as i wanted to be there mentally physically i couldn't so uh, and i'm not gonna lie though i mean i was scared as hell I think if anyone's not scared to deploy, they're they're lying to you. Um, but uh, yeah, I was I was scared. But uh, you know, uh, looking back on that, I wish I had lied about my knee. I wish I had deployed. And then if it had gone out during uh, the workup to it, then you know that would be fine. But at the same time, I, to, I also have to keep in mind I can't have my knee go out when we're out on patrol because if your equipment goes down, everyone else is screwed. Um, so there is a lot of issues going on there with uh, with that whole, you know, not deploying, but seeing the stuff afterwards, because uh, then I did my drilling at uh, over at Bethesda Naval Hospital, and some of the guys from our unit was uh, were coming through there, missing arms, missing legs, uh, burns over their body, and, uh, you know, I mean, not to bring up your memories, but you kind of know what it's like to be in a hospital. Oh, I know what it's like to be a crispy critter. Yeah. It's not yeah. funny. But, and, but so yeah. let, let, let's work the timeline a little bit more and then we'll get to that because I think that's very important what you're talking yeah. about. Um, so you stay in Hollywood then? Are you still working in Hollywood or did you finally, when did you decide to move home? I eventually moved back in 2010 because uh, I got a job working on Robert Rodriguez film, Spy Kids 4, All the Time in the World. And uh, so I, I got to work on that and that's what brought me back. So I, um, I moved back to San Antonio and I was driving up to Austin every day, which actually isn't as bad as, you know, think considering where I was at off 35. And I was working there and, and coming back and, uh, Eventually, I did move to Cedar Park, which is out, just outside of Austin. And, but I was still continuing to drill here in San Antonio. And then my final AT was in 2011 to Bethesda. And, but that first one in 2010 so was really hard seeing some of our guys from 4th LAR coming through there. So as you, uh, how did that work out that you started drilling at Bethesda? That was uh, my two weeks. Cause you know, you do one week in a month, two weeks out of the year. And that was. Okay. So it wasn't yeah. your actual weekly, your monthly. It was yeah, just, it was two, just weeks. two weeks. And you were doing Ward Corman stuff. Right? I was, uh, I volunteered to work the ER section. Um, some guys, of course, they chose, you know, to be down counting tongue depressors and boxes and shit and all the other easy stuff but I wanted to work the ER and as some of the people that were coming back from Afghanistan they passed through there and they would pull me aside to do suicide watch with these men and like I said some of them I recognized them they didn't recognize me and you know they're 
after going through the whole thing. What's really funny though, and a, a lot of people may not know this, is they're not pitying themselves. They're more concerned about how this is gonna affect their family, which I thought was amazing. I mean, they're like, you know, my mom's gonna cry. I don't want her to see her. I don't want her to cry when she sees me like this. You know, I, is my wife still gonna want me? I don't know. And there's, there was a lot of different things. My kids are gonna cry when they see me. You know, I look like a monster now that, you know, the kids are going to be afraid of me. All these different things are worried, more worried about other people than they are themselves. So uh, that was a very uh, interesting aspect to see about these guys that not only uh, they had amputated arms, they had amputated legs, but nothing's, nothing's worse than seeing an amputated spirit. Um, and yeah, those guys are never going to be the same, not just physically, but you know, mentally as well. So let me ask you this, and we're going to go way back. We're kind of jumping around a little bit, but that's my fault. Um, did you know about the rate RP when you joined? The rate RP? Yeah, the religious program specialist. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, the, uh, the, the guys who protect the uh, chaplains and stuff when they're out in right. the field, yeah. When you were in those moments, did you ever think back to your, and the reason why I ask is because did you ever think back to your seminary training when you were in those moments with those guys? Yeah, because one, uh, one of the things they, they teach you in the seminary is, is counseling, how to listen attentively and uh, react, you know, the way you should react. Now, a lot of these guys, you know, when they're, they'd asked me, you know, the few times they were concerned about this. So, you know, they're like, is, you know, is my wife still going to want me now that I look like this? And they'd asked me point blank. And I looked at them very honestly. I said, I don't know. She may not. And I go, but all I can say is that if, if she can't handle you now that you're at your worst, then she never deserved you when you're at your best. And they would pause for a moment. They'd say, thanks, doc, for being honest with me, because I really needed to hear that. It's like, you know, I'm going to hope for the best. You know, prepare yourself for the worst, but just take whatever comes your way. So roger that. And usually, you know, I see them later, you know, they're being wheeled around, um, you know, with their amputated limbs by their wife. And, you know, she's genuinely concerned and, you know, and but yet happy that he's still alive. So, uh, you know, and he, he looked at me and said, hey, doc, thanks. You know, thanks for, you know, being there for me. So, uh, but yeah, usually after that, it was, uh, after you sit on suicide loss with someone so anywhere from six to 10 hours, because, uh, yeah, you don't get lunch. You know, you're pretty much stuck there. Um, and then afterward, you just, you know, keep your keep a straight face, you know, be strong for them because they need it. And then you, as soon as you clear the area, you go and ball your eyes out uh, because it's, it's, it's not easy to see. It's not easy to handle, uh, especially, at, you know, that long of time at a time. So uh, it's, um, but yeah, yeah, it was, it was it's something I don't regret doing, but I, I wouldn't wish that on anyone. Uh, so your, your seminary time was, uh, you were going to go become a Catholic priest, yes, right? Roman Catholic priest. Did you stay practicing afterwards after you left the seminary? I did. Um, and I'm going somewhere with this. I'm not, I'm not just being no, randomly curious. I, I did. And like I said, I still do have the utmost respect to for the clergy as 
particularly nuns. Nuns are, are like very interesting. I, I like nuns. They're very dedicated. And especially since they're not considered um, like the level of a priest per se. But uh, to me, you know, there's some uh, nuns that are meant that would be excellent priests. And there's some, you know, there, but you know, anyway, there's, there's some priests that so, I don't think should be priests. But yeah, I did stay practicing. Um, so how much did, did that play into this particular situation with the suicide watch? Did you feel you had an outlet for yourself after spending, like you said, six to 10 hours with these guys? You know, uh, I, I'll be honest, um, after going through that, uh, I started drifting away. I mean, I still respect people that go to church, but for me, I mean, as far as like the spiritual side, yeah. did you feel like you could confide or did you carry it around with you? No, I, I just, um, it was really funny because after my mother died, I was very angry at God because I mean, she was a very, she didn't do anything wrong her whole life she was very religious went to church every sunday prayed the rosary all the time she ate healthy never drank never did drugs you know led a clean life and she gets cancer yeah and a cancer that she really shouldn't have been got you know shouldn't have had and you know seeing her suffer like she did i was really pissed off at god and it wasn't that way it was like that for about 10 years and then in 2009 i finally let it go and uh but then I get sent uh, told I'm going to Afghanistan. So I'm like, okay, oh my God, you know, what is, what's happening now? And, uh, but then after seeing all those people, you know, in the situation that they're in afterwards, I was like, I, I don't know. I, I, I really have my doubts that there is a God. Um, so that that's where I'm at right now. I, I don't go to church anymore. I don't, at the same time, I don't belittle anyone who still goes to church, I, uh, but uh, it's just not a part of who I am right now. So now as a drilling reservist, you, I know you came home, home to San Antonio mm -hmm. at some point in time. What caused you to move back to San Antonio permanently? That's uh, where my family's at, you know, um, as much as, you know, my, you know, we're like any family, we fight. But, uh, you know, we still love each other. We look out for each other. You know, we care for each other. Even when we're pissed off at each other, we still look out for each other. And even after my baby brother uh, finished out of the Navy, uh, he was in uh, Bremerton, Washington, which is just outside Seattle for a while. But uh, once he got divorced and everything, he came back to San Antonio. So it's, it's kind of like a central hub where we grew up, where our parents were born and raised. Uh, I have had lived in other places. I've lived in Seattle. I've lived in Colorado Springs. I mean, I've lived in other places, but for some reason, uh, it's, it's like a magnet coming back to San Antonio just brings it back. Maybe it's the breakfast tacos. I don't know, but, uh, or the Tex-Mex. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's just, to me, it just feels more like home here. So at some point in time, you leave the Navy, mm -hmm. right? That was uh, October, 2011. How was that experience? I was actually disappointed um, because they let me go because of my height weight standards. I was still able to pass the PRT with the running uh, sit-ups and push-ups, but because my height and my weight weren't within standards, they let me go. 
and I still wanted to stay. I wanted to complete my full six years. They let me go after four. Um, that was something. And again, you know, it's one of those things like Corman usually look out for each other. And I was kind of like, hey, you know, you can don't have to put that weight there, you know, but uh, no, he didn't gun deck my stats. He put in the, what was actually there. Um, so it is what it is. Uh, they let me out. Um, and what's funny is there was um, quite a few people like IT, uh, IT Montaigne. She's now a chief, I think. Uh, she's, uh, yeah, she was always glad to have me because I'd call Cadence whenever we did, P, you know, PT runs. So, and I did that at, at FieldMed too. I always called Cadence because I could project loud. And, you know, at the time I had good stamina. So, but yeah, I, I just, I felt disappointed that I couldn't finish out. And I actually, after all that, I wanted to, to see about deploying to Afghanistan again, you know, maybe get my knee straight and go. Uh, but that was, you know, I, I couldn't do it anymore. They wouldn't let me. So now you're out. Um, I'm assuming you went through the VA process at some point in time. Yeah. Let's talk about that. How was that being a reservist going through trying to get all your VA crap figured out? Uh, luckily, I had a friend. <clears throat> his name's Glenn. He, yeah, you met him before. Uh, he actually works for the VA doing their website, and he was able to help me navigate. But even then, you know, it took literally like a year and a half before they finally came back with a decision for me. Um, there's just so many uh, problems with the VA. I know you know that too. Uh, it just, but at the same time, I, I will say this much, the people that, that um, do actually do the medical providing, they're doing the best they can. And, and for the most part, it's pretty good. It's getting the, the, the care, that's the hard part. And there's a lot of times where, you know, you'll call Audie Murphy, you know, to speak to the sleep clinic and they send you to gastro. And then the gastro's person says, oh, you need this extension. So they give you the extension. Then when they're trying to tr uh, transfer you, it, you get disconnected. Then you call that and then you put in the, 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 no, the, the extension. Yeah. The, the extension that they gave you and it's the wrong one. So, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of, uh, it's very comical, you know, to say the least. I mean, it would be comical if it wasn't, you know, your medical care, your mental care that you're that you're seeking help for. I mean, but uh, yeah. So, so to me, whenever people say, you know, the government should be in control of our our healthcare, I'm like, no, no, I don't think so. Not, not so, least. what happened to you after you got out? As far as uh, what what career path did you go down? <clears throat> well, I. I, I one of the things I was doing in between um, working in Hollywood was I was a scoring, uh, scoring standardized test essays uh, for Pearson education, various states. I'm not allowed to say which ones, but there are various states, you know, which you have to score the test for. And my, my part was to score the essays, you know, the stuff that can't be scored by Scantron. Um, so I was doing that. And then I decided to like switch over to that more permanently, even though it's not a permanent position, I became a scoring director. And they started flying me to places like uh, Indianapolis, you know, Charleston, North Carolina. Uh, You're not supposed to say what states. No, no. Well, that's the thing is that's the scoring location. That's not exactly the state that we're 
oh, oh okay. okay so yeah we're doing all these you know they're flying me to all these different scoring locations so because i created the training materials i was the one who trained the supervisors and then i had to train the scorers for it and um make sure and monitor the progress as it's going along so it's meeting whatever state standards they had. And in doing that from 2004, you know, again, with different things, part-time most of the time, and then more full-time up until 2019, uh, I really saw the quality of education going down. I mean, the, the, the thing is with no child left behind is the intention is good, but it's, it's backfiring. Their, their intent is to bring the slower kids up to the more higher functioning kids. And they do that <clears throat> by saying, okay, state, you have to have this many students graduate <clears throat> or test at this proficiency, or we're not gonna give you money. So the states, they're actually allowed to create the test however they want. The federal government has no say in it, the states do. So some states, started taking, well, we expect this of our, our uh, this level for our graduates. We now want it at this level. So that way more people can pass the test. And then uh, the analogy I like to use is, is slam dunks. Obviously, uh, if the federal government or, or if the state says you have to be able to slam dunk to pass PE, I can't do it. I'm five, six, you know, over 200 pounds. There's no way I'm going to do it. But, you know, someone who's like six and a half, you know, tall, you know, you know, usually six foot or taller, they're going to have a little bit easier time. But then when they start seeing that a lot of people can't slam dunk a basketball, they take that rim from 10 feet, move it down to eight feet. You're going to get a few more people able to slam dunk. But if it's still not enough, they can take that rim from eight feet over down to six feet. Pretty soon, even I can go up and just put the ball in like that. They're just making it too easy. And so rather than um, increasing yeah, the quantity of graduates is is has increased, but the quality of their education has decreased. And that's so what you're saying is they, they made a quality or a quantity move, not a quality move. Exactly. And and really the federal government shouldn't set the standards at all. Um, and, and definitely they shouldn't be involved in, in like the funding process. Because this is all part of the Title I process. If they don't get so many gadgets, then they lose their Title I funding. You know, that, that's, that's something that uh, should be handled by the teachers and educators in that community. They should be in charge of what's going on. The federal government has should not be in that business at all. They've, and you're saying you're saying this not necessarily as an educator, but as someone who is actually grading yes. the probably more so than the actual standardized tests in terms of um, the Scantron part, like you said, mm -hmm. which, I mean, anyone can guess and get it right three out of five times, mm -hmm. but where you're actually having to put yourself, not you, but the student has to put himself into that essay. Yes, they have to. You can't BS an essay. They're scored uh, on, because they have to read a prompt, so they're scored on their reading comprehension, their analytics, how well they can analyze the, you know, the prompt. And then of course their gram, you know, gram. So those are the three things that they look for and each, each different section gets its own score. And you have some kids, oh God, their spelling is atrocious. They don't know how to spell at all. Um, well, you know, I've, no, I've noticed since this thing, 
that my spelling has gone my handwritten spelling has gone to absolute dirt yeah i mean because why, why bother i'm typing so fast oh look it's gonna fix it for me mm -hmm. and you notice it and you probably see it with the kids is not misspellings but wrong words because they're going so fast that they're not processing the words yeah. i see that in messages i send all the time where it's supposed to be the and it's two mm -hmm. because i'm just going so fast and don't go back and proofread but so you've spent almost 15 years give or take mm -hmm. in this environment so you're not talking from a guy who's been doing this for a year or two no you've had a career in that so let's go to your personal life mm -hmm. during this time frame you said prior to enlisting in 2007 mm -hmm. you were married obviously i'm assuming that yeah. divorced mm -hmm. so what's happened in your personal life since you were in the navy well about uh, 2011 is uh, just before my uh, my reserve career was cut short i started dating uh, this beautiful young woman who i i worked with her back in 2006 briefly uh, briefly before i went to the military um, and she was only 22 at the time and I was, you know, 35. Um, we were just friends and, uh, you know, she, she was a cute young kid, but, you know, there was really no like instant attraction to it. So it wasn't like, ah, you know, and then a little running through the field and everything. It was not like that. We were just friends. And then we found ourselves both sing single in, um, the summer of 2011. It was like, yeah, let's give it a shot. Somehow it just everything clicked perfectly, and we've been married since 2013. And she is probably the only woman who could deal with um, the problems that I have uh, with PTSD. Um, and you know, because I I literally have nightmares that fling where I fling myself out of the bed and come crashing to the nightstand, and all these other things, night terrors, all these other nice little nice little things, you know, that I really wouldn't wish on anyone. Genuinely, I really would not wish that on anyone, but she's, she sticks by my side and uh, I, I got to love her for it. So now speaking of that, if, if you, if you want to talk about it, if not, we'll go, we'll skip ahead. Mm -hmm. I know you lost your father in the last few years. Yeah. Shortly uh, after our wedding in 2013. So with all of that combined, mm -hmm. uh, Talk to me about your PTSD, because I know there's a lot of people out there that are going to say, you didn't deploy, you didn't see any combat, you didn't do any of that. And what, what do you say to those people when they go, wait, how did you get PTSD if you've never deployed? Uh, you know, I, I just tell them, you know, I you'll never understand, and I sincerely hope you never do understand. Because um, it's, you don't, have to actually be in combat to see what happens in combat and being on suicide watch with these guys and you're seeing them like i said nothing compares to you know amputated limbs that's one thing an amputated spirit that's something that you can never unsee um and knowing that these men i was supposed to be taking care of them i was supposed to be out there with them and I wasn't, that was that's something that's always gonna, I'd rather have deployed and gotten killed if it, if it makes any sense. Um, no, it absolutely does. Yeah, and uh, cause the guy who volunteered to go in my place, 
he goes, he died. And you keep thinking, well, you know, that should have been me. I know, you know, circumstances may have been different. I may not have died. You know, he, but the thing is, is he would have been safely in the States because he had already deployed twice to Iraq. Um, now he's going to Afghanistan. And the last words I remember him saying were, yeah, I'll go. I can sure use the money because, you know, he was in college and uh, he wanted the extra, you know, tax-free money so he can go and live better for his school life. And then, of course, you know, he doesn't come back. And uh, yeah, that that's that's tough to deal with. And then when my father, when my father died, um, I got called the night before um, to, well, not before he died, I got called like on a Monday from his girlfriend because, you know, my mother had already passed and everything. And she said, and you should go check on your father because he's not looking well and he's not listening to me to go to the doctor. And I was like, well, I'm, I'm a little too busy. You know, I, I, I was doing some stuff with Katie at the time to get our car registered and everything. So I didn't have time. And um, I had just seen him that Friday at my brother's birthday, he looked fine. You know, I'm like, you know, how bad could it be? But then the next morning I get a call from her on Tuesday and she's saying, um, his work just called, he didn't show up. He didn't call in. So I was like, crap. Uh, so I'm the only one that has a key to his house. You know, my wife and I are living in our own apartment. <clears throat> so I go there and uh, open the door. Uh, it's quiet and I'm calling out to him because he, he's, done this before where I came in late at night even though I had the key and he comes walking down the hall with his gun he was a little you know a <laughs> little worried about a little paranoid yeah a little yeah. little uh over cautious so I announced myself dad it's me don't shoot I said that actually as a joke but you know at the same time I was you know somewhat serious and then I don't hear anything so I start walking down the hallway and I, I try as I go knock on his door dad it's me don't shoot and I tried the doorknob and it's locked so I was like crap so knowing how to pick the lock, because I'm Mexican, <laughs> I, uh, I picked the lock. That's going to be the highlight clip. Yeah. But, uh, I picked the lock. Uh, I turned on the light switch. It was already on, but it was pitch black in there. So I, that, that led me to, to believe he left the ceiling fan on, but he turned the light off. So I had to go in and grab the little thing, pull it open. And he's like in a semi-vegetative state, just pull the sweat slightly twitching so i immediately you know corman's skills kicked in immediately called 911s checking his pulse his respiration rate doing all the other stuff trying to get you know perla done on his eyes with what little flashlight i could find and then when the you know ems technicians go there get there they uh, i help load him onto the spine board all the other stuff and i tell him okay i know he has a pistol in here let me make sure it's secured before you do anything i was like roger that so you know I got the pistol secured everything and uh yeah he uh he apparently had developed uh meningitis uh, and it actually is a form of meningitis that usually only uh, hits pregnant women and infants so was it bacterial or viral bacterial and so Ooh. he uh, he's he obviously isn't pregnant or a woman and he's definitely not an infant you know he was 68 about to turn 69 and um uh, yeah, they didn't find that out till a few days after he had been at, at uh, Fort Sam in the intensive care unit. And we had to make that decision to, because um, had he 
had they even been successful in bringing him out, he would not have been in a mental state that we knew he would want to live in. So we made the choice to pull the plug. But again, you know, it, all that experience does is go back to the thing. It's like, you're a corpsman and you yourself were an example not to give, you know, give up. And because you didn't go the night before to see your father, he's dead. You know, it's one thing to see, you know, your, your Marines like that. See your, you know, people that you were serving with like that, or even people you didn't serve with like that. Um, but when you know, it's, it's your own parent, um, yeah. So that, that, that means to me, it was like strike two, you know, that that's the second time I've, you know, someone's died because I didn't do what I was, what I knew and was trained and knew to do. Um, so yeah, that, that, that's, that compounded uh, what was already going on there. And it still does. You know, I know, yeah, they always tell me, it's like, well, even if you had gotten there the day before, you're not sure if he was going to make it. And it's like, true, but you know, at the same time, I'll never know. You know, now I, I will never know. I'll never know if those soldiers, I could have helped them, those Marines, if I could have helped them if I had deployed. I don't know if, if I would have prevented Sergeant Major Cottle from, you know, dying, you know, getting killed over there. Uh, I don't know, you know, because I'm usually very alert. Um, I, even now, I'm more hyper alert than I was in the military. Uh, like, I, I walk into the room, and first thing I'm doing is checking, you know, well, it's, it's the Marine training. It's like, you know, you're polite, you're kind, but figure out a way to kill everyone in the room, if need be. And I do that without even thinking about it. I walk in, and it's like, okay, well, I can grab that, you know, hurt, kill them. You know, this person's bigger than me. I'll probably take them out first, da 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 but of course I never act on it, but I have that plan in my head automatically. And I, like everywhere I go, I make sure I know where the AEDs are. You know, I, I fight, figure out where the, you know, exits, the fire extinguishers, all the other stuff. Um, as soon as I walk in and that's, that hyper vigilance is something that's, that's going to stay with me probably forever. I'm always going to be cognizant of everything going on around me. But yeah, that's it. So that's seven years ago, and we're going to time jump a little bit to the current mm -hmm. for a couple reasons, but mainly, so 2020 has been a glorious shit show, for lack of a better word. Um, what was your impression of January, February? What Did you have any plans for this year uh, that got sidetracked by COVID? Well, I actually started teaching in January. I decided to go ahead and get my alternative certification. I was offered a, because of my, you know, scoring of the standardized tests, I knew how, I knew what they were looking for in the essays and I knew how to explain it. So uh, I was, you know, fast tracked by a, a one of the high school principals to uh, be a reading teacher there. Um, I technically, since I didn't have my teaching certificate, I was put as a long-term sub, but I was teaching the class and I liked it. I loved it. I was like, oh, great. This is my calling. It's like, this is what I feel like I, I love to do. So uh, I started going through the alternative certification program and all of a sudden uh, we leave for spring break at March 6th. We're supposed to come back, you know, a week later and we never come back. And I'm like, 
just when I started getting the hang of doing the classroom and everything, you know, I have to teach from home now. I have to teach, you know, via Zoom. I have to put up these lessons and talk to these students and they're not even showing up. So, you know, and, you know, what can you do? You have to, I couldn't really ding them for it because they said, well, we don't know if they don't have internet access. We don't know if, you know, they don't have a laptop or a computer or whatever. You know, basically we have to give them the benefit of the doubt for any little excuse possible. Which, yeah, I actually ran into a buddy today who was out for a run, who's a teacher mm -hmm. for uh, elementary school. Mm -hmm. And I asked him, I said, so what happened to all the people who had like a 58% going into spring break? Mm -hmm. He's like, nope, nobody failed. Yep. As, he, as far as I know, nationwide, nobody failed mm -hmm. last year. Everyone was, it was a give me year. Pretty much it was. So we go into the lockdown. Mm -hmm. What percentage of your kids would you say actually showed up uh i'd say well if i had a class of 10 10 students i'd be lucky if one showed up a lot of times oh wow yeah a lot of times uh none showed up at all and because i can't be alone with anyone in a chat room for obvious reasons i mean would you want your teenage daughter alone in the chat room with a grown adult man even though he's his teacher, no, probably not. So I couldn't have class that way. Now they set it up where, like we're doing now, we have to record everything. So that way we can make sure there's nothing inappropriate going on. Also it works to our advantage is like, well, your kid didn't show up. So th they did rectify that. And um, so has it gotten better now? <laughs> it is, but it's nothing compared to what in-class teaching is. Uh, we do require that they have their camera on at all time to make sure they're not sleeping. Uh, if they have to get up, because obviously, you, you know, just like in class, you got to go use a restroom, whatever. They have to type in the chat and say, be right back, you know, so we know. And of course, we have the screen set up where <clears throat> we have them in different little tiles like the Brady Bunch. And you can see who's, who's there and who's not. Uh, but again, as far as lecturing goes, when you're doing your screen sharing, you can't do that. So, you know, there's always that chance that someone could bug out while you're, you know, trying to explain something to them. And the only thing you could do is expect them to, you know, find that out when they do their work, if they do their work. And then, of course, if they start falling behind, then we got to call parents. And then most parents, though, you know, at least uh, at, at Veterans Memorial High School, they were pretty good about responding quick. But that one's close to a, a military base, uh, Randolph Air Force Base. And usually military people are more disciplined with their children you know they're stricter with discipline than say you know people at the other end of the district where they're not so disciplined um so you know it's kind of a hit and miss depends a lot mostly it's now falling on the parents to make sure that their their children are doing what they're supposed to to get their education so do you feel like you can make a difference um once once this upside down world goes back to at least in-person classroom do you think your knowledge of how low the bar has been set through the standardized test that you can, that you'll be able to help bring it up and raise the bar back up? At least for my kids, yeah. Uh, really what they should do, first of all, the Department of Education, the federal government should not be in charge of each state's education, period. That should be left up to the educators and the parents of that community. Um, really, once they get rid of that and they start allowing students to fail because you know again you know some people they just don't 
they can get it, but sometimes it takes a little longer. Um, and you don't want them to be further behind and have their morale going low. At the same time, you don't want the smart students to be pulled back down and like, God, I could be doing so much better than this. This is boring. And you're actually seeing a lot of the smart kids drop out because it's boring. There's no challenge there. So, you know, so go ahead. Are you, what was I going to, how was I going to put this? So I, I always said when the lockdown started and let's face it, they weren't really locked down. So the stay at home orders mm -hmm. started. Um, I always thought that there was going to be a certain percentage of people who did not return their kids to school, mm -hmm. who realized this is, it's easier for me to teach my kids with the internet and with YouTube and with these other modern techniques yeah are you seeing that there's people not going back to school yeah enrollment's gone down quite a bit at first at the beginning of the school year there was not enough enrollment for me to have my reading class again um and now we're seeing some teachers bailing out because they're afraid when the students come back that they're going to catch it. i feel nothing i've only been sick two days since boot camp <laughs> my you know in the last 13 years two, whatever they they injected us with in boot camp it worked fine for me. So uh, I, I have no fear for that. My wife, on the other hand, though, she's deathly afraid of it. And I'm like, you know, it's got a 98% survival rate, you know, less than 1% of the population has gotten infected. But, you know, uh, at the same, people are going to feel what they're going to feel, no matter what. I mean, do, do, you, do you see a fundamental change coming for education? I actually do. I, do I think we may see online education as a more viable option. Um, also, I, I think in-class um, teaching may be uh, modified to where right now what we're doing is uh, we're having online education where the teacher's in the classroom teaching from their computer and the kids are in the classroom. You know, what kids, what parents are allowing their kids to be in, they're in the classroom as well, pretty much doing what they would be doing at home, which is, you know, sitting at a computer and learning. The, th the thing is, is that the kids that are actually at home, they can't have that teacher go up and, you know, raise their hand and have the teacher go over and talk about that. They have to, you know, digitally raise their hand and you're not sure if you're going to be able to pull them into a breakout room or explain it. Um, so, yeah, there's that disadvantage. But overall, I think maybe we're going to be going to a more electronic based educational system all right so now let's get into the interesting shit mm -hmm. so one of the reasons why i wanted to have you on you're going to come out let me double check you are going to be posted on the week of the 26th okay. i believe hold on let me double check that joey jules I think it's the week of the 26. So, and there's a reason why I'm choosing that week to make sure that this comes out. You have for the second time mm -hmm. decided to run for Congress, one in a district that included McAllen, Texas last year, mm -hmm. heavily Democrat district. And now this year you're running in a slightly different district, but you're- It's the one adjacent to it. And actually a good portion of it still is in McAllen. Okay. You know, which which boggles my mind because you think McAllen as a whole should be in the same exact district, not two different districts, but it's all part of well, the gerrymandering that's going on. Let Let's start there. Um, Texas has some really really wacky districts. I think Very. part of 
one of the Castro brothers district goes from like here in the thin line that goes all the way out to El Paso. So the first part of the question is, why the hell would you want to be a congressman? And the second part is, how do you feel about having such weird districts, just dislocated districts? You have a major city in McAllen, your area is San Antonio, Cibolo, Universal City, whatever. I forgot exactly where you, which one of those three cities you live in, but in a ma two major, relatively major metropolitan areas that are so separated by hours worth of driving. Literally, yeah. Well, the reason why I wanted to be a congressman is because um, the two-party systems failed. There, there's no so let me guess, you're not running for a Democrat or a Republican? I'm running as a Libertarian. Um, and the reason why Libertarians is because after uh, careful analysis of what their policies are, they sound very irrational and absurd to most people but they make the most sense. And just like when they first started in 1971, people thought libertarians were crazy because they wanted gay people to be allowed to get married. 30 years later, when it starts becoming popular and the other two parties start you know, believing in it, now they're like, oh, we were ahead of our time. Uh, there's a lot of other things that the libertarian party, if you sit down and look at it, make a lot more sense than what's going on now but people are so used to well i really don't like this person but i don't and i don't like this person either but i really don't want that other person to win so i'm going to vote for this person i don't like just so that that other person i really don't like gets in and that's not the way politics should be you should be voting for someone that you believe in that you think is going to represent you well that's going to do what needs to be done and really, you know, everyone says, you know, this election is too important for us to, you know, vote third party. Libertarians want to reduce the power of the federal government because really the federal government should not be in charge of all these things. There should not be a federal minimum wage. There should not be, you know, federal funding of schools. It should be done so, on the state or even county level. So let, let's jump to the second half of that question. The the gerrymand the ger blah, 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 that word gerrymandering. Mm -hmm. I cannot say that. Yeah. I mean, like we like I said in the the last question, the last part of the previous question was both of the districts that you ran in. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't remember the actual district numbers, but had you going to McAllen? Yeah. Had you going to these faraway places from San Antonio? Mm -hmm. I mean. Literally, you're, what, 15 minutes at top from downtown San Antonio? Yeah, I'm in Cibolo, which is just past Rotoma Park, so <laughs> the racetrack. So from there to San Antonio, to San Antonio city limits is probably five minutes. Yeah. If that. But yet you're having to drive southeast for, what, four hours to get to? It's, it's roughly about 300 miles long. So going from uh, just outside San Antonio north, going around the outside of San Antonio into like to the oil and natural gas area, all the way down to the Mexican border in McAllen, where, uh, you know, there's a lot of, you know, immigration issues going on there. They don't have the same issues. And to me, that is a disservice to the people of those, of those uh, congressional districts, because the needs of the people in McAllen are going to be vastly different than the needs of the people who, who are rely solely on the uh, petroleum and natural gas, you know, uh, for their livelihood. So you're, 
you're doing a disservice to those people by gerrymandering those districts just so you can get reelected. And, and it's, you know, because like I said, you know, you're going to you're going to cater to one, but you're going to ignore the rest. Whereas if there was more centralized, yeah, the people in McAllen as a whole, all of that southern tip of, of Texas, they should be in one district by themselves because they all have the same issues. But up here. Well, it seems like Cibolo is going to be closer to the Cibolo population is going to be closer to relating to what San Antonio needs. Mm -hmm whereas McAllen's going to be closer to what Brownsville needs. Yep. And like you said, two, two completely different mm -hmm. demographics. Yep. And one, one is actually dealing with border issues while the other is 300 miles away. Yep. So let's talk about what it means to be a libertarian to you. What, did, what does that word mean? Because I think people think rich white people who don't want to pay taxes. Yeah. Well, it, it was really funny is is because Democrats say that we're um, that we're Republicans that uh, support that want to smoke weed, and then the Republicans say that we're Democrats that that love guns. You know, you know, we're actually neither one of those people. Uh, we are our own entity, and we basically libertarian policy is. We want you to live your life however you seem fit, so long as it's not interfering or depriving people of their life, their liberty, or their property. That's it. And so what does liberty mean to you? Liberty means uh, free to do, again, free to do what you wish, so long as you're not uh, depriving other people of that same right. You know, that's why we supported same-sex marriage. It's like, well, is that really affecting me? No. Are they forcing me to have, you know, marry another man? No. But they love each other. So why, sh why should it bother me that they're getting married to the courts? So that way they can get in health insurance benefits from their spouse. They can, you know, get all the other, you know, file jointly as married couple for their taxes. All these other things, benefits that married couples had, they were denied for forever until it was suddenly popular. And then like Hillary was a good example. She said it should be between a man and a woman. And then when it became politically popular, she said, and anyway, you know, two people in love. And I'm like, libertarians were saying that a long time ago. It was like, yeah, you know, I, I may not be gay. I, I may not, you know, maybe my religion doesn't support it, but you got to keep your religion out of politics. I mean, if not, then, you know, as it'd be like if if Sharia law was forced upon you. Most people will say, no, no, that's your religion. I don't want to support it. Same thing for you know Christian values. Not everyone believes in the Christian doctrine. Not everyone has that same moral compass that you do. And just because it's different doesn't mean that it's you know wrong for them. It may be wrong for you, and that's fine. But it's so, it's not harming you. So why 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 should it bother you? So I follow a lot of uh, libertarian. Um people for lack of a better way of putting it um and we're going to talk about the lockdown because i know it's a big issue so there was a great meme i saw that kind of made me laugh and frustrated me that a very very progressive friend i actually say i i look at the people on the left side of the political spectrum in three ways you have your liberals you have your progressives and you have your leftists mm -hmm. just like you have your conservatives your neoconservatives and your alt-right because i don't consider libertarian beliefs being anywhere on that right left spectrum mm -hmm. at all i consider that uh, a whole different thing and we'll we can get into that later 
But my point is, this leftist guy posts a meme that said, with the masks, it like uh, the Black Lives Matter protests and the the open it up protests. He's like the difference between a conservative and a lib and a liberal, as he put it, is that a conservative is only about I, and a liberal is about we. Like we care about the we, you only care, you you on that side of the political spectrum only care about the I. So in your mind, I've seen so much, and the people who watch us know, I do a show called The Apocalypse Diaries. It used to be a daily show, now it's three times a week, mm -hmm. talking about COVID, talking about studies I've read and news articles I've read. I've seen so much science that backs both sides. The lockdowns didn't work and the lockdowns did work. Masks don't work, masks do work. So when they say we're following the science, in your opinion, from your take, what science is the science that we should be looking at? Well, first of all, you know, Dr. Fossey, I'm not discrediting his credentials. He, he's been doing epidemiology for decades, but uh, just like with any doctor, you can get a second opinion. We shouldn't be relying on one doctor's opinion to have this entire glo you know, global decision made on that. Because there are doctors that disagree. The doctor up in Sweden, I mean, he's, he's, he says, you know, we, sh you know, they should, they remained open. They had, you know, some light restrictions and their, their, uh, their mortality rate was not much different than, in fact, it was still overall 0.06% uh, of the, their population has died from COVID-19. So, so there's two things there. So one, people will say, well, Dr. Fauci isn't making these rules up. He's listening to what the people at the CDC or NIH are telling him. And I do believe that. I don't think he's making yeah, this stuff up on his own. Mm -hmm. On the same note, I also don't know that he is actually doing his biology work. He's a, I think when you get up to a certain level, you got to take away that he's now the administrator. He's not in the lab mm -hmm. touching the slides, doing all that. That being said, there's a lot of people that say, well, yeah, you're right. Sweden may have a 0.06 mortality rate, but it's far higher than Norway or Finland. No, they're about the their next door neighbor. Yeah, they're about the same. Now, <laughs> watching, now, watching the numbers, it's actually almost triple. Yeah. But then you also have to take into account that Sweden had a different elderly care center mm -hmm. set up than the other two yeah. countries, which is where the massive hits are. Yeah. So. What would your, if you were to get elected, mm -hmm. what would your stance be on 2021? We start to see numbers tick up for a second wave mm -hmm. and it comes to Congress. We need to do something. Do, would you support a bill for a second lockdown? No, because that should be up to the states to decide. That should be up for the cities and the counties to decide. This is the reason why. And, and again, libertarians want as little federal involvement as possible. Because the population density in New York City is vastly different than it is in Edinburgh, Texas. You have people literally living on top of each other in New York City. They need to be extra cautious. But if you're living out in a small country town like St. Joe, Texas, or, you know, Armour, Oklahoma, do you really need to be locked down entirely? That's why federal mandates don't work. They're too well, broad okay, of a so spectrum. Right so what do you say then when we see uh it looks like new york's going to go back into a mandatory mm -hmm. lockdown california is still doing its shit and i know you're running for a congressional district in a 
partially metropolitan, partially rural area in mm -hmm. Texas. But with the like the Michigan lockdowns, which I would say mm -hmm. would be similar to the district that you're going to, what do, what's your how do you feel about those? Because those are being done at the state level. Yeah, that, that, level. that's too extreme. And again, like I said, even uh, even in Texas, we just we just pointed out the gerrymandered district. The needs of the people in McAllen are different than needs of the people over in Floresville or Seguin or one of the other areas in the district. Same thing in Michigan. You know, Detroit has a higher you know population density there versus Ann Arbor. You know, all these other different factors. Really, it should be up to the community government, not the federal government. The federal government should not have any say in that. It should be left up to, you know, uh, more like the municipalities or the, or the counties than even the state, because the states, again, there's too, there's too vast of, of a difference in population densities across every state to just blanketly say one thing or the other. So on, on that, we'll take Texas, for example. So throughout this entire uh, stay at home, slow down, whatever you mm -hmm. actually want to call it. Uh, the one thing that Governor Abbott's been pretty steadfast on mm -hmm. is bars stay closed. Mm -hmm. And apparently he said that they can start opening at 50% capacity last week. Uh, Tyler County, Travis, not Travis's. Uh, Travis is Austin. The one up by Dallas. I've got what county it is. Uh, Tarrant, they, Tarrant County. That's Fort Worth. Yeah. Their county judge or whatever you call the the guy from the county mm -hmm. said absolutely not we're not going to reopen any of the bars because the governor said it's up to the counties to decide mm -hmm. so again we're leaving it at the lowest level but yet we're we've been seven months and no bars opened at all mm -hmm. do you feel like one what's your thoughts on just keeping the bars shut but two do you think that's being unfair to the service industry by keeping them shut? i think forcing any business to remain closed out of your own personal fear uh, is, is wrong. You, you shouldn't force anyone not to earn a living. And you know that's the other thing too, is, is waitresses, bartenders, they don't collect unemployment, you know, because they rely mostly on tips for their, for their income. So unemployment isn't gonna do anything for them. And so right now these people are at a worse advantage. And also you mentioned bars, most of them are owned by individuals who literally have put their life savings into this. They put blood, they put sweat, they put everything into this because they were hoping this was gonna sustain them for the rest of their life or until they sold it. Now they can't earn any money. And that's why you're seeing an increase in, in domestic violence. Because, you know, hey, I can't pay my bills, you know, the, stop it, you're, you get frustrated. So you, you see an increase in domestic violence. You're seeing an increase in substance abuse. Because of this, because people are trying to like, they're worried about where their next meal's coming from. They're worrying about if they're going to lose their house. And actually, in my neighborhood, there've been a lot of people moving out because either well, so you'll have foreclosures or because they can't pay the rent. So now you have people on left saying, "Well, that's just people being selfish," you know, because being selfish, you could kill grandma. Let me stop you right there. Being selfish is forcing your fear on everyone else. That's also selfish, in my opinion. Well, and they'll say that the scientists say, well, science says, look at the transmission rate and, you know, super spreader and all of that, which leads me into this question. So as a libertarian, you have a belief, uh, do no harm, as don't force upon or don't aggress against other people. Yeah. 
so during this crazy time that we've had, we had the George Floyd incident. Um, and not to say that libertarians don't support people actually doing the job of policing, mm -hmm. but what, what was your initial reaction when that video came out? Well, one of there's there's really a lot of things that can be resolved by reducing crimes, uh, re making crimes where there is no victim. Um, one of the things that we've been adamantly supporting since 1973, and again, people think we're crazy, is ending the war on drugs. The reason is multiple. George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, that wouldn't have happened because the police would not have had a reason to go and kick in their door looking for drugs because, you know, it's legal. Uh, the war on drugs, which, you know, Biden actually helped write the crime bill. And you know what? It's disproportionately uh, targets minorities because the penalty for possessing cocaine is a lot less than a penalty for possessing crack, which is still a form of cocaine, but cocaine is usually purchased by people of wealth and crack is usually pur purposed by poor, uh, purchased by poor people and minorities. So you're seeing a disproportionate um, exercising of authority. So now you have police patrolling these minority neighborhoods more, more, uh, more so than they are in others. And that's increasing police interaction and police conflict with minorities. And yes, I understand that cops, they have a dangerous job. And it is possible, you know, that uh, they can feel threatened. In George Floyd's case, no, you know, he was already on the ground. There was no need to keep your knee on his neck at all. That was excessive. Uh, but at the same time, you know, Breonna Taylor, she would be alive today if there was no war on drugs. And so let me ask you this. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Go, no. If you need to finish. No, go ahead. So, so the big thing that came out of the George Floyd immediately was uh, the call to defund police. Mm -hmm. First question to that is, in your mind, what does that mean? Well, I, I think defunding, in my opinion, is we've gotten police to a military style where like SWAT teams and all these other things, they basically have the equivalent stuff as small army. And we should not be militarizing the police. You know, these are the people that you're supposed to protect and defend, not, you know, bow down, you know, have, you know, contain and enslave. You know, you shouldn't be, have to be afraid of a cop at all. You should be grateful that they're there. Um, you should be wanting to like wave hi to them, not, you know, be in fear is like, oh my God, I'm going to get you know, harassed by the police. And I've been pulled over for what I, I like to say, being brown on a Friday night. I had my little Toyota MR2. At the time I was you know, a bouncer, so I had earrings in my ear, a goatee. You know, and you see this bald, you know, tough looking Mexican driving a red sports car they'll pull you over you no, know, for any little thing. Uh, in this case, they said that uh, they couldn't see my license plate clearly, that the light was too dim. And again, while, while, the, while the one police officer's you know, showing me that, his buddy's over there with a flashlight looking in my car, which violates the Fourth Amendment. So um, again, the drug war is creating reasonable suspicion from and targeting minorities, more so than it is for others. But uh, yeah, as far as defunding the police, police are necessary 
if anything, to break up domestic disputes, uh, robberies, even, you know, uh, definitely for rapes, you know, for, for crimes where there are victims. Uh, but for victimless crimes like, uh, you know, possession or even dispute, you know, selling of, of narcotics, legalize that like you did marijuana in Colorado Springs, and you'll see a lot safer streets, guaranteed. So now uh, the second part of that would be um, if it came to a bill that called for, say, a national registry of bad cops as a congressman, would you support that? A national registry? Like, so all the cops that are dismissed for violence, for abuse of power would go into a database. So if he goes to my, if he left, you know, Podunk, Texas, went to Miami and tried to get a job as a Miami police mm -hmm. officer. As far as a national database, um, I don't think the federal government should necessarily fund that. But, you know, if you want to have an entity kind of like throwing it out there, IMDb, which if you want to find out anything about any movie, who was in it, who directed it, who wrote it, what else does the director do? You have a database like that that's independent and fried. I'll, I'll, I'll support that, but that's not something the, the federal government should be forcing people to do. It should be something that's voluntary and possibly done, you know, on, uh, as an agreement between the states. But, you know, maybe the states can actually say, well, we have this database, but then it should be something that the federal government controls. So now in your libertarian mind, what would a good police force look like to you? Well, first of all, the police car should be plain and visible. I mean, they should be visible to anyone where you're like a mile down the road and you see that cop. The reason why is because you slow down. You know, having these stealth vehicles that are giving out tickets, that's, that's entrapment. And it's actually not making the streets safer. It's just generating revenue to the county, the city, or you know, whatever municipality it is. That's all those, those police cars are designed for. If you have the cars visible, you will see uh, speeding go down because what's the first thing you do when you see a cop on the side of the road and you recognize a cop, you let off the gas. You start checking your roof mirrors, you start checking your, you know, everything else. You start paying more attention to your driving and what you're doing. Whereas if you got pulled over, you get a ticket, yeah, you'll pay the fine. But is that gonna stop you from, or get you to slow down? No, probably not. But, and that's the other thing too, is if cops are visible and patrolling neighborhoods, people are gonna think twice about breaking into a home. People are gonna think twice about, you know, robbing a liquor store or whatever, because they know that they're visible. And that's the important thing that police should be is visible. So that way, you know, Say you need a cop, say, say, you know, you're having some issues, say there's, you know, something going on, a crime going on that you can't stop. You should be able to find them quick instead of running right by them and saying, oh, you know, that's an SUV. It's dark, but I can't read that it says Bear County Sheriff's Department on it because it's written in dark, you know, lighter black letters. Again, they should be visible because it's more important to prevent the crime than to actually catch the crime. That's my opinion on what the police should look like. So that's been one of my things with these no-knock raids. It's mm -hmm. like, is your purpose to arrest the drug person or is it to get the drugs off the street? 
Because if you knock and he runs and takes his kilo of cocaine and flushes it down the toilet, mm -hmm. you can't make the arrest. But guess what? The cocaine's off the streets. Mm -hmm. So which one's more important? It seems to me we've become into a penalty phase now, not mm -hmm. a not a um, deterrence phase. Yeah. So going, go ahead. No, go ahead. I'll let you finish. I was gonna say, go, going on this, on this subject a little bit more. So here we are, what was it, late May, early June, when all the George Floyd stuff yeah. came out? It's, I mean, it's a blur. To say pre and post pandemic, it's like there's a defined line in my head that seems so long ago. Yeah, Breonna Taylor was in March. George Floyd was, like you said, April, May. I don't remember, but yeah. So shit hit the fan, mm -hmm. to put it bluntly. Um, and we saw an organization and a movement. And I, I, I caveat both those. One was a movement, one is an organization. They both have the same name, Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. um, as a libertarian, the do no harm, uh, all people's lives should be treated equally. What's your thoughts on Black Lives Matter as a whole? Well, and, and a lot of people say this, you know, well, shouldn't all lives matter? It's like, of course, all lives matter. But right now, what the issue is, is Black people are being targeted. So that's why Black matters. Black Lives Matter is here. We need to focus on the attention that's going on there. Um, I do feel that the media is disproportionately covering these things purposely so that we can have these riots, so we can have these things. But there is a legitimate issue there. Um, we need to have a separate organization police the police. Um, and I'm not talking about internal affairs, which is, you know, where most of the, well, they got internal affairs, so they had, but those are still cops that are inspecting cops. We should have, you know, some group of non-police officers, you know, maybe judges, lawyers, whatever, that are taking a step back and is looking to see what civil rights are being violated because a lot of times those no-knock raids where they're just that's violating your fourth amendment right plain and simple just because and the thing is like with brianna taylor she was considered a soft target it was supposedly an ex-boyfriend that was uh might big might have had uh drugs there and uh you know you're gonna get a warrant on a might and you're gonna serve it close to midnight when it's oh, there, there's a yeah there, there's a bunch of stuff that came out this week about their, their grand jury that didn't indict, mm -hmm. that there was a lot of uh, stuff that was either withheld or they were lied to. Yeah. The, the post office that was saying that um, they were getting packages for her address mm -hmm. said, no, we said that that stopped like a year ago. Mm -hmm. And they put in their uh, probable cause warrant that it was still going on. Yeah. So how, how would... Um, how would you define the movement of Black Lives Matter versus the organization? Well, obviously, um, like I said, libertarians, we want you to live your life as long as it's not depriving others of their life, liberty, or property. And when you start rioting and you start raiding people's businesses, that's their property. Uh, if you start injuring other people because of this, that's you're interfering with their life. Uh, and if you start, you know, forcing people to lock their doors, that's also depriving them of their liberty. But overall, you definitely need to address the issue that uh, police are disproportionately 
targeting minorities. And they're, in this case, they're more aggressive. And like I said, ending the drug war would do great wonders for that. There is no denying that. And so what do you tell the, what do you tell the, 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 okay, I'm just going to say it like this. What do you tell the rednecks that are out in the oil fields that, um, that literally what we've been talking about is an issue when they're like, well, maybe they shouldn't just do any crime. Mm -hmm. And they, I mean, like to, to the people who are actually going to look at you to vote in a few weeks mm -hmm. and what do you, what do you tell them? Like, well, if we, if we cut back on some of these policing things, like if you, if you decriminalize all the drugs, what's going to stop uh, someone from getting high and going and shooting up a school or something? Well, what's, what's stopping someone from getting drunk and getting behind the wheel of a car? You know, the thing is with the war on drugs, it's not a war on drugs. It's a war on certain kinds of drugs. And We've had these narcotics illegal for almost 50 years, and they're still on the streets, and they're actually more widespread on the streets than they were when it first started. Um, when they legalized marijuana in Colorado and all these other states, crime went down because you're not having to sneak stuff around or shut people up for moving your product. You know, uh, when was the last time you saw a liquor store? open open up and shoot out another liquor store because it was you know affecting their sales within a neighborhood never maybe not since prohibition the same thing would happen with like like we saw with legalization of marijuana if you legalize other narcotics because uh one you'll have a safer product instead of it being made in god knows where and who knows what by who knows who you're gonna have it done in clean labs. You're gonna have it done by people with PhDs in chemistry. You're gonna have people that, you're gonna have people that are marketing you know, the product because that's how alcohol sales you know, are done now. They're done with marketing. And also they control the dosage. You're not gonna have cast strength alcohol unless you buy it, but mostly it's gonna be like 80 proof. And then also you're going to have, and this is the big one. People always say, well, my, you know, my father was an addict. My uncle died of a drug overdose. My, and yes, those are sad losses. But, and this is something that Dr. Jorgensen, our presidential candidate, pointed out. that she, is, she has her PhD in psychology and she was a psychologist. She says that addicts don't seek help when they think they're going to get arrested. And we've seen that in Portugal. Uh, when they they decriminalized everything in 2001, you see HIV and AIDS cases drop significantly because people aren't sharing needles. They're able to go and get fresh, clean needles. They're able to dispose of them properly. Uh, you're seeing less overdoses because people know what they're getting. They know what they're injecting into their body, sniffing into their body, smoking into their body, whatever. They have something that they can go buy on. Also, you're not seeing the street violence. Why? Because, you know, hey, just like the dispensaries in Colorado Springs, you just take out more advertising. You make your sign in your storefront look better. You're not shooting them up or, you know, having to, you know, off someone to, you know, keep your product. You're having to draw in customers using advertising. So you, they've seen a decrease in street violence. And overdoses have gone down significantly, dramatically, because you're not afraid of getting arrested having uh, you know for seeking help and that is the big thing is overdoses is actually the main reason why you should end it because right now well first of all addiction is a medical condition it's a medical issue 
but when it's illegal, it's treated as a criminal issue. And that is a big difference. Why we should end the drug, uh, the drug war is because these people who have addiction, they have a disease, they have an illness, we're treating them like criminals. And that's why they're not getting help. Treat it like the medical issue that it is, and you can have that resolved and help these people a lot better than just incarcerating them because they're still going to get you know, their narcotics in there anyway. And that, that's, that's a whole other issue with the prison system. But uh, yeah. And, and again, also, the United States, we account for 5% of the world population as a whole. Out of the 7 billion people, we account for roughly 5%. But out of all the prison population worldwide, we have 20% of that market. And a lot of it is because of the war on drugs. Uh, we're putting people in for 20 years for you know holding an ounce of weed, you know, back when it was illegal, and still in some states it's illegal. Um, you know, we're having people for possession and thing. And really, again, who's the victim? The person that yeah yeah you know the person that's uh, you know you know using it yeah it's affecting their body. But then again, so are trans fats, so is alcohol. Tobacco kills 480,000 people every year, but it's still legal. And that's because it's the person's choice. It's their individual decision to decide what I want to put in my body. And if you want to put garbage in, fine. If you, if you want to lead a nice, healthy, clean life and jog every day, that's fine too. But you shouldn't force what you think is wrong on others if, if it's not hurting anyone else. So now, as you were saying with the... Uh addiction side of it. Let's talk about the VA. Um, I know that San Antonio and a lot of Texas is full of vets. Mm -hmm. The VA is not broken. It's there's a, there has to be another word worse than broken to describe the VA in most states. Mm -hmm. If you do get elected um, and you take your seat, what role should the federal government play in the VA? And what what outcome realistically do you think you could see change with the VA? That is a tough one. Um, Cause really I, I think government controlling, um, controlling it, it's uh, not very helpful. Uh, it's again, and if you could name one government agency that's run well, I'll tip my hat to you because I have yet to see one run well. Um, well, we, we, we know that the Navy's run great. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Never have any issues there. <laughs> um, but yeah. But no, I mean, but I, so the way that I explain to people, well, you're, you have the VA and you're getting your VA benefits. That's socialism. Mm -hmm. Know that I signed a better contract for work than someone who worked at McDonald's. My contract said that if I got severely injured, they have a program that that will take care of me. And that's the way it should so be. If you're, if Walmart, if you're working in a distribution center and a pallet falls on you and you can't ever work again, they're obligated to pay you disability. Same thing for the government. You are a government employee. You put your life on the line. You got damaged on the job. You do, you've earned that disability. Not, I won't say earn, but you deserve it. Yeah. So the question being is, much like, much like prisons, I, I feel like there's a certain thing that the government, if they're going to incarcerate people, they should be the responsible party for the incarceration. Mm -hmm. And if they're going to send people to war, they should be, to an extent, the responsible party for doing things to 
ensure that that person can come back to as close to fixed as possible. Mm -hmm. But we're seeing massive failures in the VA. Yep. Um, and even worse so with COVID. Uh, I have friends who have foregone treatment for months mm -hmm. because either they can't get an appointment, they do, they try to do the Zoom stuff like this, but the it's not working. Uh, the telemedicine needs another couple of years, I think, before it's actually going to be completely effective. But so as someone who believes in a very small government, mm -hmm. federally, what what is the role of the federal government? I mean, they're the ones who should be paying yeah. for this, but how? Well, and this is one thing that libertarians believe in. We believe hospitals should post their prices. Um you should be able to decide based on your price where your money is going to go. Right. But I mean, for the VA, which would be, it would be nice to be able to pick which doctors I have, which ones have appointments available. And I knew they do have, if for some reason, like say you have an appointment and the earliest you can get is 11 months out. If you appeal it, they will let you go to a, a doctor outside the VA, but that should always be an option. That should yeah. always be an option. Because so should should the VA be like Medicare then like a, a insurance program versus an actual established hospital? Not well. Again, this is a problem with with Medicare. Is once people find out that the government's guaranteeing payment, there's no incentive to adjust their prices. Right. No, but no, but what I mean is, where if you're on Medicare, you get to choose where you go yeah. versus the VA. You're forced to go to the hospital mm -hmm. or the clinic until you get to that, like I'd see 11 months out and have to go through this whole appeal process mm -hmm. to get an appointment. Yeah, I should. I, I think you should be able to pick your own doctor, your own medic, medical care facility. There are some doctors I like in the VA a lot and I would stick with them, but uh, some people may not be have the same comfort with them. They may not be as confident in them. Um, they should be allowed to choose where they should, uh, their disability coverage should, should cover. So to that note, um, let's move to the military. Then. Mm -hmm. I'm a big fan of, not that we lost, but that, hey, we should probably pick up our toys and bring them home. Mm -hmm. I know that, again, Texas has a lot of very, very patriotic vets, and your district is right on the very edge of a major Air Force training base. Mm -hmm. And any time that we withdraw troops, we start to see a a downsizing of the military mm -hmm. and i'm pretty confident that in your neighborhood you probably have uh, not in your street per se but in in the general area around you there's a lot of military rentals and people would like get really upset if we started to draw down and less training less people doing rentals of their property so but what do you what's your take on the military in general well and this is the official libertarian policy is we need a strong military but we don't need it going out to the rest of the world and policing the rest of the world. And the analogy I like to use is our party symbol is the porcupine. The porcupine has the most effective defense against predators and pretty much any other animal in the animal kingdom, but it doesn't go out in the forest looking for trouble. It doesn't go out in the forest picking fights with other, other animals. It doesn't, if it sees like, you know, a, mountain lions, you know, going after a chipmunk, it doesn't interfere. It just lets nature happen. Uh, that's the way our military should be. Our defense should be strictly for defense. So uh, 
you know, I, I saw that commercial where this one veteran's talking about how great Joe Biden was about you know, passing this bill to get um, this more, which it really is, you know, IED proof vehicle. Uh, but would be even better is bringing your your son's home, bringing your daughter's home, and having sadness. Yeah, but what do you say to the people? What do you? What would? How would you deal with that military industrial complex not wanting that to happen? Uh, well, first of all, you know pulling our troops out of foreign areas, foreign bases, and bring them home. So that way we're not sending money overseas. We're, we're keeping the money here. We're still funding the military to protect our land. So the money is gonna stay here. It's not gonna- But what they'll tell you- Yeah. It, it's, what they'll tell you is we're not getting MRAPs blowing up where we need to buy new ones. We're not getting helicopters shot down where we need yeah, to buy new ones. Yeah. There, there's that issue. We're, we're also not uh, having to pay. Oh, no, I'm, I'm saying that's what the military industrial complex kind of wants in its yeah. own weird way. Is it want vehicles destroyed and ships sunk? And yeah, because that means that they're going to be able to have new contracts. Mm -hmm. So how would you attack that sector? Not attack, but how would you deal with that sector saying, hey, if we bring everyone home and we stop these wars, you know, we may have to lay off 75,000 people in your district. Mm -hmm. I'd say... Well, you know, and th this is what's funny is uh, when I worked for the American Cancer Day at one time, I said, my, my dream is that I'm out of a job. I, my dream is that, you know, no one ever gets cancer and there's no need for us anymore. That should be the goal of people that are supplying these weapons is that we never have it. But you know what? It's never going to happen. We're always going to have people that are wanting to do us harm. And so there will still be a need for that. There's still going to be a need to do training exercises. There's still going to be a need to, to fire off live ordinance, you know, and practices to, you know, do all these things. It's just that you're not going to have as many lives being lost because of that. I mean, there are training accidents. We had one, I think, fairly recently in San Diego. Uh, I forgot where. But, uh, yeah, we, you know, there's still going to be training accidents. But, again, it, you know, it's not going to be, you know, 5,000 miles away and, you know, seeing innocent civilians get casualty as well, especially with like the drone strikes. And yeah, they're taking out key targets. They are doing their job, but there's also a lot of, you know, innocent people getting killed too. Um, and that's actually, again, what Mount Town was about is basically military operations and urban terrain. You're learning how not to kill the good guys. Or and only focus on the bad guys. So really, bringing our troops home, it's not going to create any vacuum or you know need for that because we're always going to need innovation. We're always going to need to stay on top of you know the our defenses because you know again we're only one account uh, for five percent of the population. That's ninety five percent of the world. If they wanted to, they could still you know go after us. They're not going to because like the porcupine. It never really has to use this defense. It just has to flex up, show this is what I got. And whatever predator wants to do the harm goes, oh, okay, fine, I'll go this other way. And that, that's what so, our military should be. It should be strong, but used only for defense. So now let's go into this part of the question, which would be um, in terms of spending, mm -hmm. uh, would you be down for cutting the budget then oh, yeah. for the military? Well, you know, I mean, again, because most of the cuts are going to become for our overseas bases, you know, like Launchstool, like uh, Lake and Heath, England, you know, the, the military bases that aren't on U.S. property. 
Okinawa. I mean, granted, you know, I love our third third Mar division, but you know what? Keeping them, bringing them back uh, to the states, having them on on uh, first Mar div and second Mar div, that works just as well. Uh, and again, because you know what? Japan's our ally now. We don't need to have an occupied force over there in Japan anymore. Uh, well, so what do you say to the people that say that China is the next big threat and we want that forward operating basis so they stay further away from mainland United States being Guam and Hawaii? Oh, Guam and Hawaii, yeah. And that's the other thing. We could uh, fortify those areas. And you know what? When we put bases there, well, like Pearl Harbor is already there, that money's going into their economy. You know, we, we do have a basis in Guam, I believe. So, yeah, yeah we, you know. But I mean, but, they, but they'll say that without having Okinawa, it would make Guam and Hawaii more vulnerable. Well, then you reinforce those. So let me go to this part. I know that I, I love my libertarian beliefs, but I know some people go a little bit crazy mm -hmm. and kind of throw the say that even the Constitution's restrictions on personal freedoms mm -hmm. go a little too far. You, from what I know about you, are really is about the same belief on the constitution as I am, that that's our base set of rules mm -hmm. and that's what makes us who we are. Yeah. So with the military, and this will be the last military question, but with the military, what's your thoughts on trying to get the constitution back in line with the, the government back in line with what the constitution says about declaring wars and appropriations like are in your opinion in your beliefs in the constitution are drones a legitimate means of fighting the fight no actually i think it's it's uh creating more animosity towards the united states giving them more of a reason to attack us but i mean in terms of like the constitutional legalities of it oh no uh, again you know it's there's uh, you know first of all we've been in iraq and afghanistan almost 20 years now you know, no other war has lasted this long. It's time to end it, period. Bring our troops home and cease and desist all, you know, basically we want a non-aggression pact. Just like so, we, so you would, if Trump or Biden won mm -hmm. um, and they asked for another, what is it? Uh, a, a use of authority, use of military authority to continue? Or would you, would you draft, a, would you draft a, a resolution to end the use of a military force yeah uh, i would i would draft up a non-aggression um pact because really well because right now they're 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 operating under a, a i think they're still operating under the 2003 use of force mm -hmm. authorization or the defense authorization yep. from 2003 mm -hmm. so would you ask for that to be repealed oh yeah i mean because and again we've seen a lot of civil rights violations under the patriot act yeah, I'm not doing anything wrong. I have nothing to sweat. Still, you shouldn't be spying on me. Yeah. That, I mean, so, that, that's just basically, you know, the nuts and bolts of it. I mean, do we really have to sacrifice? If you're sacrificing your freedoms and your rights just to feel safe, then you're not really free anymore. Well, aren't we kind of doing that right now with the lockdowns? We're doing that with the lockdowns. And, and, again, and I mean, don't, in my opinion, they're not federally mandated, mm -hmm. but they're Definitely, I think, an overreach by the states. Oh, yeah. To some extent. Overreach by states. And like I said, no one should be telling you you can't earn a living anymore doing what you want to do. Yeah. So I think you and I have a difference of opinion on the mask. So, well, I think that if you're afraid, stay home. You know, if you feel that they're ending the lockdown too soon, then don't go out. That is your. Right. Oh, no, no. I was, I was saying 
on on mask usage. Mm -hmm. I think you and I have a slight difference of opinion there. I look at it as a as the no shirt, no shoes. Yeah. No service policy. Yeah. I mean, I'm fine but with I, that. If a business wants me to do it and I want to do business there, fine. If I don't want to do business there or I feel I can get it elsewhere where I don't have to wear a mask, then I'll do that. You're in complete control. I mean, yeah, where I draw, where I draw the line personally is I'm not going to wear a mask outside. Yeah. Me neither. Well, that's because you and I were trained corpsmen and we were trained when to take off our gas masks. And the parts per million to take your mask off wearing a gas mask, there's a lot more of that gas in the air than there is, you know, particulates from someone just talking or sneezing even. Yeah. So, you know, we understand the, the concept of, of dispersal. Uh, so, yeah, being outside, I, I don't see why we should even have that. It's ridiculous. I, I think it was back in June, speaking of the lockdowns, I saw something in the in the news talking about how the earth had started to heal itself with all these pictures mm -hmm. of, you could see, uh, I forgot exactly where it was, but you could see the Himalayan mountains for the first time in 30 years mm -hmm. from this town in, in um, I almost said Italy, in India. Because damn, if you could see them for the first time from Italy, that's really impressive. <laughs> <laughs> but uh and, you know, uh, the San Antonio River by where I live, you've been by my place, you can see the bottom, you can see the fish, you can see everything. You, so even from a firsthand perspective, you can see a big difference without the runoff from the golf courses. Mm -hmm. So now it's kind of pushing the narrative on the left that this is why we need to have the Green New Deal done. And I know that's going to, if Biden wins, that's going to come up next year. Mm -hmm. Where do you stand, not on climate change, because I know we disagree on that, yeah. but on, on something that massively, that massive of a bill being done as a law? Well, first of all, it's not really addressing climate change so much as it's controlling what you eat, how you use your energy, uh, all these other things that really have nothing to do with the climate. And of course, as far as climate change, there's there's too many PhDs out there that don't agree with what the mainstream media says. And doing- the, But what about the consensus? There's not a 97% consensus, I guarantee you. Um, but there is a good reason why we should reduce our carbon emissions. And that's because what goes up must come down. And whenever the hydrologic cycle happens where the rain washes out all this air pollution, it gets in our soil. It gets on our food, our plants. Our cows are ingesting it, so there it gets in your meat. It gets into the rivers and streams, so there goes our fish. There is a legitimate reason to reduce your carbon emission. As far as controlling the climate, you have a better chance of affecting uh, moving a mountain. I mean, it's just not gonna happen. Um, but yeah, the, as far as the Green New Deal, as it stands now, the way I read it, no, it, it's taken too many liberties uh, with overstepping the government's boundaries and restricting people's lives and saying what they can and can't do, especially under the guise of controlling the climate. I can, if they would call it for what it is, and that is protect, you know, protecting, polluting our natural resources, yes, but this to me, the, the whole thing about saying that we can control the climate when there are so many other factors involved in it, 
uh, climate change that have nothing to do with man and are way beyond our control, um, then yeah, to me, there's just this big pet peeve about people thinking almighty man can control the climate. We can control our environment in the immediate era, but as far as the global climate, no. But. So what? So you're, again, going back to states' rights and thinking from the most, I think we both agreed, the most influential government should be the closest government. Yeah. Literally, the, if I can go punch my mayor or my councilman in the face, that's a government that should have the greatest amount of influence over how I live my life. Yes. Versus, you know, I'm not going to get on a plane to go punch Donnie Jingles in the face. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, that being said, the I don't know if you saw the thing about California and Governor Newsom saying by thirty by 2030 or 2036, yeah. no gas cars mm -hmm. or whatever. I forgot what the exact date yeah. was. Yeah, I think it's ten so, years from now. Yeah. So here's the question: um, the Constitution has the Interstate Commerce Clause. If he follow, if somehow this follows through and they remove all gas stations by 2030, let's say, and they go to a purely electric vehicle, do you, does the federal government have any, should they have any say in that? Because I can't drive in with my Subaru Outback that's a gas car if I don't have no gas stations once I hit the California border. It literally affects my ability to freely transit across the United States mm -hmm. at that point in time. So is that something where the federal government would actually have a place to say, uh, no, you can't do that? You know, I'd have to think more on that one. I want to say, I want to say no, but at the same time, what you bring up is very poignant because, and actually I think, okay, I think the federal government does have the right because of our interstate highway system that is federally funded. So if people want to drive on a federally funded interstate highway, they should be allowed to use whatever they want. You know, the state cannot all of a sudden take possession of something that's federal. It'd be like if Texas decided to take control over Fort Hood and Fort Sam. That's federal property. You can't do that. You can't dictate. And the, the alcohol laws on Fort Sam, Randolph, or any base in Texas, they don't, the Texas laws, alcohol laws do not apply. They are open right. on I can go days. buy a bottle tomorrow. Yeah. So, so really, if it's on federal property, which a lot of, you know, there's a lot of federal property in California, then it, they can't, they don't have the right to put that restrictions on automobiles so long as they're driving on, on the interstate. If they want to have, you know, something on their private roads, that's their right. But again, I could see people getting there, parking in like a little parking ride, whatever, and then having someone pick them up. But, you know, again, you, you'd probably also see a lot less um, commercial traffic going through there, a lot less other things going through there. Uh, but uh, yeah, as far as it, if it's federal property, they can't dictate what goes on federal property. So one of the big things that came out uh, recently was the president signed a bipartisan bill called the Great American Outdoors Act, mm -hmm. which is now the, a law. I think he expanded uh, public lands by 4 million acres. Mm -hmm. I know that there's a section of the libertarians that have a big issue with what they call the commons. So public lands, everything should be sold off to private entities. There should be no public parks that are funded by the state or the federal government. What's your take on that? 
Well, as far as I know, it's the government's property. They can do whatever they want with it. And well, I guess that's what they're saying is that the government shouldn't has no ability to own property. Well, yeah, it does. I mean, it needs it, you know, it needs like you go to the US embassy in Germany, that's US property. You go to the US embassy in, in, in uh, Britain, that's US property. The US does have a right to own property. And in this case, you know, when Roosevelt did the, you know, created the national parks thing, he did it for a reason. And the government owned that property again. What I oppose though is doing enforcing eminent domain where the government automatically takes, says, hey, you know what? I need the building you're living on and you're gonna go out and we're gonna pay you what we think it's worth. But you're like, well, you know, I had a contractor just a few weeks earlier offering me $100,000 more than what you're offering. Yeah, but this is eminent domain, so you're gonna take what you get. That's what I, but yeah, if the government has parks and wildlife, if they wanna keep funding it, fine, That that's great. So on that note, um... I don't know how close your district gets to Brownsville. It actually go, uh, the one that I'm running in covers all of Brownsville. So does it cover Boca Chica? Uh, yeah, it does. Where SpaceX is. Mm-hmm. So there's been a lot of talk. So this will, your intimate domain thing came up. So the constitution does give, does give the federal government the power of, of use of eminent domain. And it shouldn't have it, but yeah. Um, we can talk about that in a second, because <laughs> I do want to ask you something I've been thinking about for a while after we get through with this part. So there's been a lot of talk about Elon, who I have nothing but respect for, especially with SpaceX. Mm-hmm. He is manipulating the local city government to apply an eminent domain to give the people actually a relatively good value for their homes, if not above market value. Mm-hmm but kind of using that as a stick to get people out of that little Boca Chica village area as he expands the SpaceX launch facility. Mm-hmm. Who do you, who would you put the blame on for allowing that to happen? Well, Elon or the city? I think it'd be up to the individual to decide if they want to sell I mean, I mean the, the fact that it's being done. Is, yeah, the, the government shouldn't intervene uh, for anyone's business, personal business. I mean, uh, if, if the government wanted, like, again, this goes to, you know, got, uh, city governments funding huge sports stadiums. Hey, you know what? The, the Los Angeles Rams and the Los Angeles Chargers, they're the one that's making the money off it. I mean, is, is it going to, should I ask the federal government to open up my comic book store to buy the building for that? No. You know, and same thing with any corporation, any government subsidy or intervention they should not be interfering with the free market. If those people want to sell their homes, that's up to them. If they don't want to sell their homes, that should be up to them, not the government. And uh, unless Elon Musk wants to really you know, pay them well, that's fine. The only problem I have with that too, and this is one thing that I, I, I kind of feel about the gentrification of certain areas, is that all of a sudden you raise the property values to where the property taxes are unaffordable to the people who didn't sell. Right. So, right. And then they're forced to to move out because they can't afford the property taxes. And again, property taxes, I think, are, are ridiculous because you're basically paying rent for your own land. You don't you'll never right. own, I actually, you know, own your land. You're basically renting it from the county that you live in. 
I actually had this conversation with my mom uh, on her birthday. So that was like three days ago. She was telling me that in California, there's a proposition. Uh, I think it was Prop 8, which like fixed the property taxes at a certain level. Mm -hmm. And then um, there's a new proposition that's supposed that the way it reads, it sounds like it's going to for senior citizens, it's going to keep it. But when you look into it, it may actually double or triple their property taxes yep. from stuff that's been uh, to a new assessed value. So like my parents, when they bought their house, they cost $37,000. I think they got locked in somewhere around there. So she pays pennies on the dollar mm -hmm. for property taxes. Then you cut to now, that neighborhood is 40 years old. I think the, I think the house was built in 64, 67. Mm -hmm. So almost 50 years old yeah but the neighbor in orange county is everyone wants to live there so i think the next door neighbors went from like 990 so they would reassess her property taxes at 900 at that 990 rate mm -hmm. if it's close and square footage you know what door it would be it was the first time she was talking about leaving the state because of that yeah so what i was going with that was that no matter what you do you pay off all your mortgages after 30 years mm -hmm but you still have to have a base level of it. You can never be broke and live in peace mm -hmm. with property taxes. No, never. Because you will always have to have a certain amount of income to, to survive. Like I could have a 300 acre farm mm -hmm. and hunt and farm and make zero money, but I'd still have to make enough money to pay that property tax, even if everything was paid off. Yep. So what do you tell the people who say, well, property tax funds schools, it funds this, it's the local stuff. Mm -hmm. What do you tell them? Well, I mean, is, is, they, is it fair to the people that don't have children in school? Is, is it fair to the... Well, it's for the common good. The why I don't use the police, but I still pay my taxes for the police. Yeah. Or I don't, I've never used fire department. Mm -hmm. Well, and again, this is where I, I, I come into, well, how well is our educational system working and should it be getting funding anyway? Should we keep paying into a system that's, that's not working? I mean, if it's broke, fix it. If it's not broke, don't fix it. But this is so broke. A, and so why should we as keep a, as a, throwing money at the situation is not and keep throwing more money at it. It's not going to make it any better. Changing it, fixing it will do better. I know that uh, uh, Julian Mardock, who's running for state uh, legislature here, he's proposing a voucher system because this way parents can choose which schools they go to. Because there are some schools with teachers that really, they're terrible teachers. I hate to say it, but there are. And, but they still get, they still have the, the teachers union keeping them employed. But if the parents suddenly can decide and pick which schools they want to go to, they can go to that one. And the thing is, is that a lot of people who are poor, they don't have to move to a neighborhood they can't afford to give their kid a quality education. The kid can get a quality education by going over to a different school. They don't. Have so to let me ask you this. District. Tenure. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about tenure? As a, as a new teacher, how do you feel about tenure? Uh, I, I don't think it should be. Um, I don't think it should be allowed. I think you should be keeping your job like any other job based on your merit of your work. And not, you know, certainly you say, okay, I reached this level, I'm gonna, I'm gonna rest on my laurels. If you do that, then there's no incentive to either maintain that status quo or to improve. So, you know, having tenure that that basically disinhibits people from maintaining certain standards. 
So last last two subjects, I think, unless we go off on some weird tangent. So we've developed actually three. Uh, so we'll, we'll go to this one first. During this lockdown, we've developed two um, two things that have come out. Uh, the term cancel culture, which we'll stay with this one because of education. And then the other one is the government said you can't work. Mm -hmm. And we'll come to that one next. But so with cancel culture, if you say, it seems like definitions are changing. I remember growing up, racism meant that you had a systemic, that you not systemic, you had a almost a moralistic belief that your race was superior to someone else's race. Mm -hmm. So if you're white, you think that black people are far below you and could never be as good as white people or Mexicans, the same thing. Now it seems like if you make an off-color joke about one person, you're suddenly a racist yeah. and it's time to destroy your reputation. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people from Brett Weinstein and Eric Weinstein, some inner, inner, inner yeah intellectual dark web people to doctors are all saying that this is coming out of colleges and even high schools mm -hmm. now. Is there something going on that's driving that? Do you see as a teacher? Uh, well, uh, again, I, I see that as like, and a lot of it has to do with the, the media focus on certain things. Um, it's basically trying to dictate what you can and can't say. Um, and I always tell people this, the First Amendment, yeah, it protects your right to say what you want to say, but it also protects speech you don't agree with. You may not agree with what someone has to say, but they have the right to say it. And it also, you know, depends on the context. Now, obviously, I say, you know, if like my Mexican joke earlier, of course, I broke in because I'm Mexican. I'm playing on the stereotype. I'm not I'm not saying that all Mexicans can break into things. And to me, it's it's like a tongue-in-cheek saying of it. But uh, someone could easily take that out of context and say, well, he's saying Mexicans are a bunch of you know thieves. And I was like, no, I'm basically making light of that belief. Um, so yeah, I see that as kind of like this political correct culture is basically trying to control what you say. Go ahead. So to the first to the First Amendment piece, uh, which I am in the same boat as you. I, I am I'm I'm an I'm an all amendment absolutist. I'm a Bill of Rights absolutist. Mm -hmm. Um so the question is we just saw Donald Trump say that he's gonna ban critical race theory from federal government education. Uh, as far as like federal employees do not have to sit through critical race theory, which is something to do with uh, white people are evil no matter what, and there's systemic racism because white people and blah, 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 blah. Um, the First Amendment issue, because you said something about the First Amendment, it made me think. So is that blocking? How do you feel about the president of the United States unilaterally banning it from uh, the federal government teaching it in terms of like internal classes for federal employees, or is that violating their free speech to teach it? Well, I mean, is there is there is there a middle ground, well, or is it one way or the other? I, I I think government, you know, federal government, whether it's federal government, or state government, they set the requirements for their employees. Just like my school district, 
It has an employee handbook. I'm choosing, you know, I have to follow it. If I don't want to follow it, I don't have to work there. Same thing with like, you know, federal employees. If And if you want to do that on your own, if, you know, because I know, I'm not sure if you did, but we had the the ethnicity sensitive sensitivity training at the Marines. Uh, and yes, we were all joking about it because, you know, we're, you know, Marines, we're, we're all different backgrounds, but we're all brothers. You know, we, so we joke about, especially, you know, uh, ethnicities, we joke with each other, but again, it's just joking. Um, but yes, there, there are some people that are extra sensitive of certain things. Um, but at the same time, you know, you have to look at a situation with context. Like uh, you can have, you can say an off color remark in a crowd full of people and every single one of them laugh and think it's funny. But you have one person that takes offense to that and that person loses their job. And in this case, we're not looking at the, the whole, the, the many, we're looking at the individual. And this one individual is basically saying, I don't want you saying that because it offends me. And so you're basically dictating something that affects my liberty. I mean, granted, there are some things you can't say, like if it's said with malicious intent, yes, I can see that. But if it's, you know, an off-color joke that came, I just won't say it around this person next time. Right. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, you be sensitive that way. But yeah, I mean, if if it's an inadvertent remark, uh, then yeah, it it's, should not be penalized to the full extent. So let's go to the other part of what I was thinking. So the big question here is, we've talked about uh, some unemployment and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. and so when the federal government, actually, I think we talked about handouts, but when the federal government and the state governments say, close your businesses mm -hmm. and you have all these people unemployed, the, the phrase that's being thrown around over the last seven months is universal basic income. Um, and I do believe in the free market, a hundred percent. That being said, when the government, when, when the sole power structure says you have to shut down, there is no more free market during that period of time. So what responsibility should the government take to ensure that people aren't kicked out of their houses and have some sort of income? And is that a universal basic income, at least in the short term for your, in your mind? Well, again, you know, for me, I would not have ever told any of these businesses you can't earn a living. And, and so really, as far as the situation is now, it's, it's hard to say because I would not have ever done anything that stupid, you know, to create the situation now. Because like I said, there's so many other ancillary effects that the lockdown has. It's making some people feel safe and secure, but you know, it, it's at what cost? And in this case, as far as like, a, like you said, set income, that's, that's, that's not logical because the cost of living in Houston, Texas is vastly different than the cost of living in Freer, Texas. So having it on the same wavelength, that's... Well, what about a means-tested one then? A means what? A means-tested one. So everyone would get what they need. So in San Antonio, it may be 1500 bucks in 
Frio, Texas, it may be 500 bucks. I don't know. Again, you know, one that, again, you're, you're saddling the taxpayer with, with something the government screwed up in the first place. So yeah. it, it's not really fair to the taxpayer as well. Um, Especially since there's fewer people paying taxes right now. Yeah, exactly. There's fewer people paying taxes. This was literally the stupidest move in, in the history of any government is forcing businesses to close against their will. I mean, again, if you didn't feel safe, don't go out. That's your right. If you do feel safe, you should be allowed to go out. If someplace says you have to wear a mask, fine. If you want to go there, wear a mask. If it says it's optional, fine. You can go in without one. Again, you know, individual liberties, that's what should have been done. Because, you know, it's easy to, uh, it would have been a lot less difficult uh, for these small businesses to go out of business if they had at least some revenue coming in. And they could actually negotiate with some of their lenders or whatever, say, hey, look, you know, business is down because of this. Um, and again, there has to be some accommodations in the private sector as well. They have to realize that the government shouldn't have to step in for that. But, you know, there should be some um, certain allowances of that, uh, allowed on, on behalf of the individual and the debtor, um, the debtor and the, and the, you know, the debtor and the debtee, I guess, uh, as far as uh, the circumstances, in this case, extenuating circumstances that are beyond their control. It's not like they don't want to pay their rent. It's not like they don't want to pay their bills, just that they can't. They're legally not allowed to generate cash. Yeah. It, yeah. Now, what I will... What I will say, though, is what amazed me was at least, you, you know, you've been in my place. Uh, we've had a conversation before. What people were able to do on a dime, uh -huh. I, uh, the, what was it, the fifth, the 13th, we got the, the warning order then from the president doing it of March. Mm -hmm. And then San Antonio went to its stay at home order, I think, that weekend and then shut down bars mm -hmm. that Wednesday. The how quick shops and or restaurants more so that weren't able to have people in switch to takeout and at least be able to pay their rent was amazing. The downside is the boutique shops that mm -hmm. are retail shops yeah. that don't serve food. They're the ones that got crushed. Well, and one that's overlooked and people think I'm joking, but it's strippers. No, I, absolutely. They, I mean, those women literally, and most of them are single mothers Suddenly they can't, and they can't file for unemployment. They're self-contractors. So let's go with this, uh, with this final political-ish question. So I've been debating in my head this for about a week and I was going to do a Facebook post on it, but then I didn't want to hear shit. So I'll take your shit instead. Um, amendments versus laws. Mm -hmm. I feel like that when we change the core of who we are as a country, it should be an amendment. And laws should be built off the Constitution. So if we want to see, and I know you're against it, but if we want to see universal health care for everyone, we should make an amendment that says this is what the country now wants. The country has a belief that health care is a right, and now it's enshrined in the Constitution. Now build the health care for all law off that. Do you see that as a better way of going when we come to these huge UBI healthcare um, infrastructure build out things that everyone's talking about doing? 
or should they be satin laws? They should be satin laws because, um, again, when the federal government does a blanket edict that affects the entire nation, it's going to affect the entire nation differently. Again, you know, and I go back to the different population, the entire population of Texas versus the entire population of South Dakota. There's definitely a lot more people and some in more concentrated areas in Texas than there are in South Dakota. In South Dakota, literally, there are more cows than there are people in South Dakota. That's, that's actually a fact. I, I thought that was kind of funny. Uh, same thing like, like Wyoming. You got all these uh, states that are broadly you know, carried out. Um, so to have this blanket solution for the entire country, again, it, it, to me, it's, it's not the federal government's job to do that. It should be up to the states. It should be up to the counties. It should be up to the lowest form. The federal government should be the weakest form of government, not the strongest. And to me, that that's that's something, you know, the onus is on the, the people of that community, the people you know, of that government community, that they should figure that out. It should not be something that say all you know these people in South Dakota or or North Dakota or any of the Dakotas that they're paying all this tax money to, but it's only benefiting New York City, or it's only benefiting these other things. It's, it's like, I mean, it, to me that's that's just the federal government doing it. It's 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 overstepping its boundaries. So what what do you tell the people who are going to look at this? And I'll give you this clip too, so you can use it for your own media. But um, what do you tell the people who on November 3rd are going to see your name on a ballot? What do you tell them? Why? Why you? Why? Why they want when they see why vote for me? Yeah, because I want to give you your life back. I want to make sure that you have the decisions that you can make and the government can't dictate what can tell you tell you what to do and what not do. I want you to be able to Rest comfortably in fact that if you want to earn a living, you can earn a living however you deem fit, so long as it's not depriving others of life, liberty, or property. You should be allowed to do whatever you can uh, to live, to earn a living, or you know just to how you interact with others. All right. So, as you know, that this podcast is called "After the Battle Campfire," which. The, the premise of the whole show, and I, I'm going to have to say this for like the next 20 episodes so people learn, um, is that back in the day, whether it was the Revolutionary War, the Samurais, whatever, uh, they didn't have planes to fly back home after, after they were out campaigning. So what would happen is they would fight during the day and then go back to their camps, sit around campfires with brain matter or whatever all over their face and tell stories. And so that came from the idea that the samurai used to do the same thing and when a samurai lost its master it, it became a ronin and the channel and the, the thing i'm trying to develop is a, a thing called i'm calling it the modern ronin so how do you see yourself fitting into that idea of a modern ronin someone who's lost his master in the service and still wants to serve people Basically, the what the impetus for me wanting to do that is just because, like I said, I've seen and realized that the two-party system has failed and that I want to make a difference by pulling, by reigning in the government, by stopping it from rolling over people. Um, you know, you can't have the servant of two masters if you're serving 
um, yourself, you know, when you're, you can't take care of your own needs when you're too busy trying to fund the government's needs and the government needs not are not necessarily your needs, especially when they're going, you know, to some other place in the country. Um, you should be worrying about you. If you want to donate money to like, you know, hey, fund the Guggenheim Museum or whatever, go ahead. I donate money to St. Jude's Children's Hospital because they give free medical care to cancer kids. I believe in that. I have no problem giving my money to that, but uh, that's my choice. And your where your money goes should be your choice as well. And not something that the government controls or dictates because you may not agree with it, period. If you agree with it, fine. If you don't, some people may have an issue with that. Perfect. You know, I, I we are at two hours and 48 minutes right now. Oh, okay. So we're going to end it here. I really wish you well. Um, I would vote for you if I was in your district. <laughs> tell, tell people where they can find you uh, online. Online? Oh, well, uh, on Twitter, I'm at Christo Dude. And on Facebook, there's Christo for Congress 2020. And those are my primary campaign outlets. Um, and usually on, on Ballotpedia, you can actually find my contact information. Uh, so you can reach me at uh, anthony.cristo at gmail.com. That'll probably be the best way to get a hold of me. I, I check my spam filter all the time. Sweet. All right, man. Well, it was great seeing you. Too bad we can't do this in person yet. And it's not because of the COVID. I'm just not set up to do a two-person interview mm -hmm. yet. But that's going to change here. Hopefully, as this channel grows, and I'll get you in, and we'll sit down and talk and have a whiskey or a beer together. Yeah. But thank you for coming on. All right. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you can follow us on social. Check us out at our website, modernronin.com, on Instagram, The Modern Ronin, on Twitter, at TommyChase01. And you can always support us at modernronin.locals.com. This is our locals group, and it would be great if you guys joined and subscribed. Some great benefits. Talk to you guys soon.